This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. I'm Stephen Meyer, and first, on behalf of the Distributed Whitehead Network and the Stanford Humanities Center, I'd like to welcome both our on-site and online audiences to Whitehead's account of the sixth day, a symposium on the soul. The first of three sessions of Whitehead today, a distributed conference that over the course of the next week is taking place at Stanford, Duke, and the University at Buffalo SUNY. It also gives me great pleasure to welcome Isabel Stengers and Donna Haraway to Stanford, a little bit of an interesting gesture since I'm not myself at Stanford, uh, and to thank Richard Rorty for so generously agreeing to participate in this session. There are several other persons whom you need to know about and whom I need to thank. First, Tim Lenoir, formerly of Stanford, now at Duke, co-organizer with me of the network and the conference. Uh, and, and, and the reason it is technologically interesting, as well as Zach Pogue, the whiz kid who has made Tim's vision a reality. I must also thank John Bender, the director of the Stanford Humanities Center, and the team he has assembled and made available to us, in particular Julie Cheng, Matthew Tews, Nicole Coleman, and Whitney Barry, for making it possible for this session to occur at Stanford, and indeed, for incubating the Distributed Whitehead Network as part of the truly visionary humanities research network of the Stanford Humanities Center. Finally, I must thank Jim Bono of the University at Buffalo for bringing the New Humanities Institute there on board, which by triangulating the conference's home bases makes it much more truly innovative and open-ended than would have been a conference based in just a couple of institutions merely a one-dimensional conduit between those institutions. Before I turn to the content, as it were, of today's session, I need to say a few words about the format. This is rather more complex than usual because in addition to uh, what I expect to be the dynamic form of the panel, per se, there is also a layer of hidden organization, as it were, making the panel available to and interactive with an online audience. Not perhaps so hidden, I should acknowledge the videographers and webcast operator and technical support from event and labor services at Stanford planted in strategic locations around this room. I am pleased to be able to tell you that as of Tuesday, the number of online, online registrants surpassed 80. What is unclear, however, is just how many of those online viewers will be taking advantage of the various options for exchange with the panelists and among themselves, especially in the form of a chat room that has been set up for all three sessions of Whitehead today. Very briefly, I want to address myself directly to the online cohort and to say to those of you who are currently not yet in the chat room that unlike the other interactive option uh, through what is termed the access grid, uh, which is very cool but not second nature to everyone, joining the chat room is a cinch, even for those among us who may have been accused and self-accused of being technologically challenged. 
in order to get to the chat room, so I'm, I'm speaking now uh, to uh, people who are here virtually but not in the flesh, as it were. In order to get to the chat room, but you, the rest of you actually will want to know this as well. Uh, to get to the chat room, there is, this is what you need to do. First, you have to find your way to the registration page for the distributed Whitehead network. I'm not going to give any web addresses, but just search either for the DWN homepage or go to the Stanford Humanities Center homepage. On the SHC homepage, you click on the link to more, which is right next to the photo of Alfred North Whitehead. This will take you to the DWN homepage. From there, click on registration, then go to the bottom of the registration screen and click on tech notes. Under chat messaging, you will find a link to the words, join the virtual room. And next to that link, the password you will need actually to get there. Click on that link and the rest is smooth sailing. I should also note for the sake of the on-site audience that aside from a very inoffensive registration process, this is all you'll need to do if you wish to participate online in the second and third sessions of the conference. And it's very self-explanatory if you go just to the uh, DWN uh, we website. Um, and just, just do a search for distributed Whitehead Network and that'll take you right there. Um, White, the, the, the first of these additional sessions is, is titled Whitehead's Poetical Mathematics with Shashin Wei, Henry Stapp, and Arkady Plotnitsky and takes place this Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 6 or 7 p.m. in many parts of Europe, and 4 a.m., I believe, in Australia. Uh, then, a week from today, we'll be presenting Perception, Living Matter, Cognitive Systems, Immune Networks, A Whiteheadian Future for Science Studies with Jim Bono, Hugh Crawford, Joan Richardson, and Juan Saucy. One last bit of business, and then I hope we can turn our undivided attention to the session at hand. In order that the audience not be distracted by what may appear occasional distractedness on my part when I'm seated uh, at the table, I need to explain that with the assistance of Whitney here, I will be monitoring the chat room so as to select comments and questions that the online audience might have for our panelists. In addition, Whitney is monitoring and making possibly the somewhat more complex set of exchanges that we hope will be taking place on the access grid, as well as making sure that the AV stream for the webcast is functioning properly. Occasionally, I may appear not to be listening to our distinguished panelists, or perhaps even to our distinguished audience. This should not be taken as evidence of boredom or even of disengagement on my part. I should also warn you about one gesture I may find myself having to make. This should not be taken as commenting on remarks by whomever might be speaking at that moment, whether a panelist or audience member. I fully do not expect to have to make this gesture, but if I do, it is directed to Whitney and means my computer just crashed. As we all know, for all the tremendous opportunities that new communicative technologies make available, they or we are also glitch prone. I hope we're able to keep the glitches to a minimum today, but I also hope that you will be tolerant of small disruptions that may occur as we try to keep the online, on-site and online events in sync. Now, finally, to turn to Whitehead's account of the sixth day. Alfred North Whitehead was an extremely important mathematician in the early part of the 20th century, mentor to Bertrand Russell and co-author with him of the Epochal Mathematica Principia, 
who in the late teens and early 20s turned his attention first to theoretical physics with the introduction of relativity theory and the first stirrings of quantum mechanics. And then upon moving from the University of London to Harvard in 1924, wrote in fairly quick succession a series of philosophical texts that established him as one of the more distinctive and creative philosophers of the period. For reasons I won't get into now, interest in his work declined in the 1960s and 70s, except for a steady stream of studies in what is termed process studies and process theology. But there is clearly a revival of interest occurring at present, again for reasons I won't get into. And it is one of the primary concerns of this conference and of the distributed Whitehead network to encourage this revival and publicize it. Witness today's event. The 2002 publication of Isabel Stenger's path-breaking volume, Pensée avec Whitehead, Thinking with Whitehead, has served both to fuel this revival and to a degree is symptomatic of it. I just want to mention two other work, recent works unrelated to Isabel's, which also demonstrate the contemporary fruitfulness usefulness of thinking with Whitehead. The 2003 Painting the Mental Continuum, Perception and Meaning in the Making by the architect and visual artist Herb Green, and the 2005 Onflow, Dynamics of Consciousness and Experience by Ralph Pred, which persuasively, and to me quite unexpectedly, conjoins Whitehead, William James, the neuroscientist Gerald Edelman, and then what's unexpected, John Searle. These are both fantastic books, and I recommend them to your attention. I'll conclude with a few words about each of our panelists. First, Isabel Stengers in the middle, who teaches philosophy at the Free University of Brussels. She's the author of some two dozen books, including in English, Power and Invention, Situating Science, and the Invention of Modern Science, as well as the multi-volume Cosmopolitique. With Ilya Prigogine, she co-authored several works, among them Order Out of Chaos, Man's New Dialogue with Nature. Donna Haraway, to her right, your left, uh, teaches in the History of Consciousness and Women's Studies programs at UC Santa Cruz. Her highly influential writings include Crystal Fabrics and Fields, Metaphors that Shape Embryos, Simeon's Cyborgs and Women, The Reinvention of Nature, and Modest Witness at Second Millennium, Female Man, meets Onkomaus. Richard Rorty teaches philosophy at Stanford, where he is on the comparative literature faculty, author of many distinguished works, Philosophy and the Mirror of Nature, Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity, and Achieving Our Country, among them. His earliest writing includes two essays on Whitehead, The Subjectivist Principle and the Linguistic Turn, and Matter and Event. I feel incredibly privileged to be able to welcome our speakers today. Please join me in a round of applause. And I'll now turn the podium over to Isabel. Well, I feel very grateful and impressed to be the one who would initiate this experiment because uh, we do not know what will happen in online uh, uh, assistance. But so I am rather impressed, but grateful also for the organizer, Stephen Meyer first, and all the other, and Julie Sheng, who was so nice. So it's such a complicated job to have a foreign <laughs> person here. <coughs> I would first comment now, I try to enter the, the job, 
I would first comment on the rather non-linear structure of my argument in the text, um, The Sixth Day of Creation. Writing about Whitehead, I always feel the need to maximize what I would call friction. That is the need to slow down against any too easy understanding, any identifications of Whitehead's speculative propositions with what uh, Richard Rorty would characterize as an attempt to mirror nature. Mirroring aims at neutrality, at the production of an image as devoid of distorting interpretation as possible. There is nothing less neutral than Whitehead's speculative philosophy. His concepts are explicitly and actively situated. They explicitly exhibit the selective interpretative role of abstractions against any consensual descriptions like the cat is on the mat, and everyone that is able to look at the mat will confirm that, says, that statement. As Whitehead remarks in Adventures of Ideas, the prominent facts are the superficial facts, the cat is on the mat. They vary because they are superficial, and they enter into conscious discrimination because they vary. The cat would maybe not be on the mat. And he adds in Mode of Thought, clear conscious discrimination is an accident of human existence. It makes us human, but it does not make us exist. It is of the essence of our humanity, but it is an, an accident of our existence. Vivid accidents accentuate something which is already there. We require to describe that factor in our experience, which, being a matter of course, does not enter prominently into conversation. There is no need to mention it. For this reason, language is very ineffective for the exposition of metaphysics. Making perceptible the selective character of language not debunking or deconstructing. This distinction is primordial for me. The point is not, emphatically not, the defense of concrete experience against their falsification by abstractions. That the cat is on the mat may matter indeed if I was looking for this cat. For Whitehead, abstractions, be they related to perception or thought, are not abstracted from something more concrete, more truthful. They are first and foremost interesting. They elicit interest, and more precisely, a variation of interest. Abstractions are asking for and prompting us to a leap of imagination. They act as a lure for feeling, for feeling something that matters, or that come to matter. The problem is thus not abstractions as such. You cannot think without abstractions, White Edward. But he adds in Science and Modern World, accordingly, it is of the utmost importance to be vigilant in critically revising your modes of abstractions. An active school of philosophy is quite as important for the locomotion of ideas as an active school of railway engineers for the locomotion of fuel. To compare philosophy and engineering may recall a very important point made by Bruno Latour. We usually take for granted the availability of technical mediation in our daily life. 
When I wrote this text, I took for granted that a plane would safely bring me to California. But all technical work, working devices need active, careful maintenance, and technicians cannot trust any natural adequacy between the device and what it should produce. They have to be vigilant and use checklists in order to discipline their perception against the temptation of taking for granted. Paying attention to our modes of abstraction similarly requires an artificial instrumentation, producing friction in order to make perceptible the selective power of our usual abstractions. For me, to present Whitehead is to try and transmit this efficacy of his abstractions. This is why my reading of Whitehead's account of the sixth day, when he gave them speech and they became souls, begins with a rather lengthy <coughs> development about what I call the conflation between knowledge and existence. This conflation is a vivid consequence of what came together with our clear conscious discrimination. That is a very pronounced tendency to exaggerate. <coughs> that is to define our conversations as bearing on what makes us exist or feel or think be it language, culture, biological selection, states of the central nervous system, and so on, all claiming to explain the difference between us and everything else, from rocks to tiger and dogs. I need the friction in order for Whitehead's proposition to resist, <clears throat> in part, and in particular against its reduction to a knowledge claim, with speech explaining what we would describe as our souls. We should not exaggerate in the opposite di direction, however, and bow down in front of the question of our own existence, a question we would allow to reverently or poetically allude to, but not to speculate upon. This philosophical counterattack against so-called objective explanations has for its results to deface the value of knowledge explanations, but also very often to give those defaced explanations free elbow room in a frictionless environment where everything that is not this ultimate fact of human existence can be submitted to their rule. For Whitehead, none of our questions deserve reverence, defacement, or freedom to rule. We should never bow in front of any of our own definitions, including what we designate as the ultimate. Whitehead's own ultimate creativity cannot be separated from the design of a cosmological standpoint that must be able to meet a speculative challenge. Everything that will be defined as truly existing will have to be characterized equally and impartially as creator of creativity. As I approach them, the first efficacy of Whitehead's abstractions is thus to lure perplexed questions about the great sad and ritual conflicts that characterize modern scientific and philosophical thought. This perplexity resonates for me with a very interesting point made by Gilles Deleuze about a change <coughs> in the problem of thought as philosophers confronted it since the classic age. At that time, the time of Descartes, for instance, the problem worrying philosophers was error, how to avoid error. But in the 18th century, a different reason for worry emerged, that is illusion. 
Enlightenment philosophers were not thinking first against error, but against superstition. And since the 19th century, there is a new problem again, as exemplified by Flaubert and Nietzsche, but which is with us now overwhelmingly. This problem that indeed deserves utter perplexity is the problem de la bêtise. Bêtise is usually translated in French, in English, by stupidity. That's my dictionary tells. But the Deleuzean bêtise is not stupor, as the term may be associated with some kind of a sleepy quality. Bêtise is quite active, even entrepreneurial, as were Bouvard and Pécuchet, and bêtise is nasty. In my text, I referred to <clears throat> the systematic misuse of our abstractions when the necessary conditions for something that we are able to discriminate parade as sufficient ones, claiming the power to explain the very existence of that something, I referred it to a rather nasty and entrepreneurial question indeed. The question of who is responsible for what? The question may be quite legitimate in some circumstances. And as we know, it has haunted Christian souls since they claimed freedom and responsibility for their acts <coughs> or were required to accept that on the sixth day they were given freedom and responsibility to sin. But the drama, the drama of the Christian soul has turned into the problem, the modern problem of who bears responsibility for knowledge. The proliferation of explanations parading as sufficient conditions would then feature a rather strange epistemological soul who demands that an objective nature bear the full responsibility for the way we characterize or mirror its order, or else we would be fully responsible for this characterization. Responsibility cannot be divided then. If nature is not responsible, we or our language games are responsible and our knowledge cannot, can be reduced to a framing of a mute reality. This interpretation echoes what was White's initial question about the bifurcation of nature. When nature, I quote, gets credit, which should in truth be reserved for ourselves, the rose for its scent, the nightingale for its song, and the sun for its radiance. And when the poets are entirely mistaken, they should address their lyrics to themselves and turn them into odes of self-congratulation on the excellency of human mind. What I called la bêtise has for its nasty quality to add enjoyment to this problem of who gets credit for what. And it turns into a high feat of scientific reason, the debunking claim that the so-called excellency of human mind may well be itself the result of blind selection or blind neural interplay, interplay or whatever authorized the objective scientist to parade as the only legitimate creature of the sixth day. Whitehead's speculative abstractions were not meant to criticize such an important social question as that of assigning of responsibility, but to propose abstractions luring different feelings, feelings that empower what could be called the cry of the Whiteadian soul, we require to understand. 
this crime must be emphatically distinguished from any we require to explain. Indeed, understanding for Whitehead first refers to an aesthetic experience of a disclosure, to the enjoyment of what has become self-evident, bringing a double sense of growth and completion. Mathematicians know very well this experience of transformative disclosure. And it is probably such an experience that Spinoza meant by more geometrico. At the end of the chapter on understanding in modes of thought, Whitehead, Whitehead writes, as we lose this sense of disclosure, we are shedding that mode of functioning, which is our soul. The cry of the Whiteadian soul, we require to understand, does not mean at all that we are able to gain access to the truth of the universe, or any part of the universe. It rather expresses the rather particular relation we may happen to entertain with what we experience. I quote, the life of a human being receives its worth, its importance, from the way in which unrealized ideals shape its purposes and tinge its actions. The distinction between man and animal is in one sense only a difference in degree, but the extent of the degree makes all the difference. The Rubicon has been crossed for better and worse. For Whitehead, crossing the Rubicon did not make us philosophers, scientists, or theologians, debating about the possibility to mirror the world, or God, Swill. It primordially made us poets, the ones who would catch the gleam of the sunlight as it falls on the foliage and wonder, rather than stick to the business of mere survival, be it biological, social, or academic survival. Men are the children of the universe with foolish enterprises and irrational hopes. The search for responsibility is a particular case of a foolish enterprise, a witness to the importance we assign to unrealized ideals, and the same holds for speculative philosophy as it embodies the adventure of hope that Whitehead equates with rationalism. Whitehead wrote that the aim of philosophy is sheer disclosure. And I would propose that the efficacy of Whitehead's speculative concepts is not to induce the smooth, satisfying, fulfilling vision of a creative universe, but to disclose, in the sense of the term I associated with mathematical understanding, more geometrico, what it takes to affirm the irreducible importance of unrealized ideals, what it takes to resist against any possibility of reduction of what made us creatures of the sixth day to a functioning we would be able to explain. The dream of explaining the fact that we require to understanding is not only foolish as any dream, it is also and primordially incoherent. This is why I first associate Whitehead's speculative definition of res verai, what exists in a metaphysical sense, his famous actual entities, with a radical disconnection between two versions of what it is to explain. As Richard Horty wrote more than 40 years ago, the Whiteadian criterion of actuality is decisiveness. An actuality's becoming is a process of deciding how it will explain itself, that is, how it will take into account its own initial data. 
What we are able to explain is not a resvera, but what Whitehead calls a society. The actual entity explains itself. What we may explain is a society. As a result of this disconnection, creativity, Whitehead's ultimate, as well as all Whitehead's speculative concepts, such as God and eternal objects, that are designed to understand whatever exists as a creature of creativity, are, no use, as are of no use to explain anything in particular. They can never appear in any of our particular empirical descriptions or explanations, <coughs> including our characterization of ourselves as endowed with personal identity, together with the intentions, hopes, and reasons we entertain. They are designed to induce the sheer disclosure that creativity is not ours, either to explain or to deny, because it would be a category mistake. Whitehead's project was not to explain societies, but to design abstractions that would give its full importance to the extra extravagant, proliferating, empirical diversity we may discover when paying due attention both to what we call nature and to what we characterize as our experiences. Societies may well not exist in metaphysical terms, but it is the very efficacy of what is metaphysically defined as existing actual entities to defend this extravagant diversity against the misplaced concreteness of our explanatory abstractions, against the confusion between what makes us exist and what lures our, our definitions, what makes us and then them exist. Indeed, the fact that societies are not resverai means that they have not the power to explain their own endurance. They cannot decide for themselves because they depend on the ongoing decisions of what is actual, actual entities. Societies depend on the fact that actual entities accept in their own becoming to conform to a common feature with which other entities that they have to feel also accepted, also conformed to. Societies endure just as long as this thread of conformity is not broken. As a result, what matters for society, the way it situates itself in its environment and the way we may explain them, has <coughs> no justification transcending the empirical fact of the endurance of this society. And all our explanations depend on this same empirical fact. Reasons matter for the creatures of the sixth day, social creatures of the sixth day. The efficacy of Whitehead's metaphysics is not to deconstruct these reasons, but to give its full import to the feeling for unrealized possibilities that they all require, whatever the divergence and conflicts those reasons may cause. Such a feeling obviously requires a particular social environment we call language. But if language was to explain that unrealized possibilities matter for us, philosophy would not produce disclosure, but sad acceptance. And more precisely, the acceptance of the usual modern incoherence that since we would give to discursive knowledge the power to explain away what discursive knowledge requires. 
Looking for reason requires a feeling of tales that might be told, that do not mirror what we perceive, but commit the question of what is perceived to a wandering, <coughs> to wandering diverging adventures with active interpretation, extraction of what may matter, and wondering about what would have happened if. Looking for reason requires what White defined as a category of existence, that is, propositions. In other words, while societies have to be derived from what is actual, tales that might be told are for whited ingredients of what is actual, are part of what actual entities decide about. This means that the coming into existence of a novel proposition as a new existence is not to be understood in terms of a linguistic social functioning. We are not producing novel propositions. We are rather the site of their production as cosmological events, novelties emerging into creation. Whitehead remarked, the novelty may promote or destroy order. It may be good or bad, but it is new, a new type of individual and not merely a new intensity of individual feeling. It is important to emphasize that Whiteadian propositions are not restricted to human experience and are no, not the privilege of the creatures of the sixth day. The efficacy of a proposition is that of an interpretative abstraction in general. It is not a primarily intellectual experience. Whitehead associates the reception into feeling of a proposition with horror, relief, or purpose. And one can think about a rabbit suddenly running away, a fox, but also to the intense propositional traffics between humans and dogs that produce the Naharaway as their witness. If being given speech, we became souls, it is thus not because we entertain propositions. It is because of the difference language as a social environment is, is liable to make in the consequences of a proposition's impact, as this impact may be amplified because of this linguistic environment into many divergent entangled consequences, disrupting our habits of thought, striking us like a thunderbolt or progressively insinuating itself, sometimes as a path for new understanding sometimes as a debilitating poison, some propositions kill. I would conclude that propositions are the keystones of Whitehead's speculative philosophy because they all together is pragmatic stance, affirming the need to take care of our abstractions and his own conceptual abstractions addressed to ourselves as creatures of the sixth day for whom a novel proposition may produce an experience of sheer disclosure. If Whitehead's cosmology is not to be confused with the vision of the world, it is because the specific impact of his strange propositions, their particular efficacy, is not to promote some socially discriminated feature against others. Thinking with Whitehead rather activates against the dreary inhibitions I associated with la bêtise, the wonder of that mode of functioning which Whitehead calls our souls. Thank you.
Whitehead invented a jargon in which familiar words are used in novel ways. His book, Process and Reality, tells us about a kind of entity we never heard of before, an actual occasion. These entities last a very short time and are subatomic in the sense that atoms are, roughly speaking, societies of actual occasions. Yet they can, Whitehead tells us, do a lot of things we might have thought only humans can do. They can envisage concepts and propositions, share feelings, make decisions, and exhibit creativity. Obviously, words like proposition and feeling do not, in Whitehead, mean what they mean in ordinary speech. It helps in dealing with this jargon to remind ourselves that Whitehead is doing what all the great philosophers did. They all created new jargons. They all took words that had familiar uses and gave them new technical uses. By the time Plato had finished with the word eidos, which had meant something like visual appearance, it denoted a kind of invisible thing in, imitated by changeable entities in the visible world. Aristotle changed the meaning of the word usia, which had meant something like possessions, and of the word hule, which had meant something like timber. He did so in order to create a new language game, one in which usia, eidos, and hule, the words we translate as substance, form, and matter, denoted kinds of things that stood in problematic relationships to one another. Plato's and Aristotle's jargons were initially as baffling as Whitehead's. Whitehead claimed that Descartes made what he called, I quote, the greatest philosophical discovery since the age of Plato and Aristotle. He did so, quote, by laying down the principle that those substances which are the subjects enjoying con conscious experiences provide the primary data for philosophy namely themselves in the enjoyment of such experiences. Whitehead's way of putting it suggests that everybody had always known that we had conscious experiences and that Descartes was simply the first to realize their significance for philosophy. But we should remind ourselves that Plato and Aristotle would not have understood what Whitehead was talking about. There is no expression in Greek that can plausibly be translated as conscious experience. In order for that term to become part of our repertoire so that Whitehead could assume that his readers would know how to wield it, a lot of linguistic manipulation had to take place. First, Descartes had to put the novel notion of race cogitans in circulation. Then Locke had to give a new use to the word idea. Locke's notion of an idea as whatever is before a man's mind when he thinks, built on Cartesian foundations, and consolidated Descartes' novel way of describing the human situation. Kant consolidated it further by giving a novel use to the word Vorstellung. Hume and Kant both thought that what initially comes before a person's mind when she thinks are little atoms of consciousness called sense impressions or not yet synthesized empirical intuitions. Whitehead claimed that this was a misdescription of conscious experience. So did Bergson and James, to whom Whitehead acknowledges indebtedness. They all thought that Hume had been wrong to claim that what's given in experience are unrelated qualia. They argued that relations are themselves directly given. This was thought to be a great breakthrough. Readers of Bergson and Whitehead, who were worried about the compatibility of freedom and determinism, were delighted to be told that materialist mechanism had been based on what Whitehead called a fallacy of misplaced concreteness. 
But in the middle of the 20th century, philosophers began wondering if a still more startling breakthrough might be possible. In the 1950s, Wittgenstein, Ryle, and Sellers suggested that we simply abandon the notion of conscious experience. They urged that Descartes had not made a great discovery. Instead, he had suckered us into using a vocabulary that had proved much more trouble than it was ever worth. Followers of Wittgenstein, such as Dennett, suggested that the Cartesian theater and the various conscious experiences said to appear on its stage were as fanciful imaginative constructions as platonic forms or Aristotelian hylomorphic substances. They were equally dispensable. What Descartes had done to Aristotle should now be done to him. Like others in my generation of philosophers in the United States, I was initially enthusiastic about Whitehead, but later deserted him for Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein, I came to think, had freed us from questions like, what is immediately given an experience, and what is truly concrete, and what is a mere abstraction? Now we were in a position to, to consign the question, what is experience really like, to the same wastebasket as the question, what is the intrinsic nature of reality, or the question, are human beings really free or really determined? On a Wittgensteinian view, there is no issue about free will and determinism to resolve, for our use of the vocabulary of individual responsibility need not interfere with our use of a mechanistic vocabulary for predictive purposes. There are no dualisms to be overcome, merely alternative vocabularies to be used in tandem. By treating the vocabulary of natural science as just one among others, useful for some purposes and not for other purposes, we obviate the worry that science might explain away things that we should hang on to. That worry motivated much of Whitehead's thinking. But we Wittgensteinians think there was nothing to worry about. For to describe ourselves in one way does nothing to prevent ourselves describing does nothing to prevent our describing ourselves in dozens of other ways. Reductionism is a bogeyman. Wittgensteinians, like myself, discard James's radical empiricism and his essay, Does Consciousness Exist?, the parts of James's work that Whitehead most admired, but we keep James's pragmatism. So I approach Whitehead with such questions as, what, if anything, is his jargon good for? What purpose might it serve? In what respects is it improve, isn't it an improvement on those I'm currently using? I'm not willing to accept the answer that Isabel Stungers seems to suggest, namely, the jargon discloses what had previously remained undisclosed. Of course it does, but that doesn't tell us whether it's good for anything. Any imaginative new philosophical or scientific jargon does that, just as does any novel, literary, or artistic production. What Heidegger called Weltschließung happens whenever somebody is sufficiently imaginative and adventuresome. Plato, St. Paul, Dante, Giotto, Galileo, Darwin, Wittgenstein, and Whitehead all disclosed something. They disclosed, if you like, worlds. But we can't live in all those worlds at once. We have to stand back from these achievements and pick and choose among them. We can't make such choices by comparing the newly disclosed world with our conscious experiences. This is because, we Wittgensteinians believe, 
there's no such thing as knowing what an object or a conscious experience or anything else is like, except by knowing which sentences are true of it and which false. Sentences are framed in vocabularies, and vocabularies are expanded in order to flesh out discourses, so we can only praise or blame one discourse in terms provided by another discourse. This means that we cannot appeal from discourse to non-discourse. As Hegel put it, spirit never confronts anything except itself. For Hegelians, as for Wittgensteinians, there is no such thing as immediate acquaintance with nature unspiritualized, or as Wittgenstein put it, no way to get between a word and its referent. This means that, Pache Whitehead, the primary data of philosophy are not subjects enjoying conscious experiences, but rather the various linguistic descriptions of things that human beings have so far dreamed of. Isabel Stengers is neither an Hegelian nor a Wittgensteinian. She marks the contrast and makes an important point when she writes, quote, Whitehead's singularity is precisely that his world has nothing to do with Hegel's. She answers the question, why did Whitehead use such a human term as soul to characterize actual occasions by saying, philosophy aims at sheer disclosure? For the reasons I've suggested, the notion of sheer disclosure is one that Hegelians and Wittgensteinians distrust. Stengers invokes a passage in Whitehead's book, Modes of Thought, in which he says, quote, philosophy is either self-evident or it is not philosophy. The attempt of any philosophic discourse should be to produce self-evidence. Of course, it is impossible to achieve any such aim, but nonetheless, all inference in philosophy is a sign of that imperfection which clings to all human endeavor. The aim of philosophy is sheer disclosure. Immediately after that passage, Whitehead writes, quote, the great difficulty of philosophy is the failure of language. And he explains this a bit later when he says, quote, language halts behind intuition. Our understanding outruns the ordinary usage of words. Philosophy is akin to poetry. Philosophy is the endeavor to find a conventional phraseology for the vivid suggestiveness of the poet. It is the endeavor to reduce Milton's licitous to prose, and thereby to produce a verbal symbolism manageable for use in other connections of thought. On an Hegelian or Wittgensteinian view, our understanding couldn't possibly outrun the, the usage of words. It can outrun the ordinary usage of words by using words differently, creating a new jargon, for instance. <coughs> we don't think that language halts behind intuition and we don't think that our philosopher, that philosopher's jargon can help our uses of words catch up with our understanding. If we can't say it, we don't understand it. For people like me, the passage I just quoted from Whitehead raises questions like, why not leave poetry alone? Why try to reduce a poem like Lycidas to prose? Why replace vivid suggestiveness with a conventional phraseology? What can philosophy hope to do that poetry cannot? And there's one further point about the passage I've quoted. Why does Whitehead use Lycidas as his example? One would have expected him to cite something by Wordsworth or Shelley, the poets whom he celebrated and contrasted sharply with Milton in Science and the Modern World. 
The practice question, what is Whitehead's jargon good for, boils down for me to the question, what, if anything, does Whitehead add to Wordsworth? I'm not sure that process and reality does do anything for us that was not already done by poems such as Tintern Abbey. But again, why did Whitehead cite Lycidas? I suspect the answer is simply bi biographical. Lycidas is an elegy for Edward King, who died too young. So did Whitehead's son, who was killed in World War I. It's often been suggested that that death provoked Whitehead's attempt in part five of Process and Reality to describe a new sort of God. This finite deity is not an omnipotent creator, but rather the being whose consequent nature retains traces of the tiniest details of the lives of both Edward King and Eric Whitehead. This God will grant each of us the same sort of objective immortality. He or she is the great companion the fellow sufferer who understands. The doctrine of the consequent nature of God seems to me the only useful product of Whitehead's attempt to construct a philosophy of organism. But perhaps it is all by itself a good enough product to justify the laborious system-building efforts of parts two through four, the parts of, the, of process and reality that develop the implications of the categorical scheme Whitehead lays out in part one. I think it's no accident that Whitehead's so-called process theology is what has kept his books in print. As Stenger has rightly remarks, for years it was through the teaching and the books of the philosopher-theologian Charles Hartshorn that Whitehead was transmitted. Stenger's, however, thinks that the theological use of Whitehead will remain an American specialty, and that for Europeans like herself, the books of Ivor Leclerc and William Christian are more useful than those of Whitehead, and, uh, those of Hartshorn and his followers. The former writers, she says, published the, truly, the first truly philosophical interpretations of his work. It was not, she says, that they disregarded Whitehead's theological preoccupations, but that they focused on what she calls the conceptual coherence of the system as a whole. I agree that commentators like Leclerc and Christian are very good at letting one grasp the coherence of the Whiteheadian system, but I regard coherence as a relatively minor intellectual virtue. Lots of kooky systems are marvelously coherent. Leib Leibniz's monadology, for instance. Its pieces interlock as smoothly and elegantly as those that make up Whitehead's cosmology. But neither system is more faithful to the facts of conscious experience or to the nature of reality than the other. For there is no such thing as fidelity to these facts or to that nature. Discourses cannot be judged on the basis of such fidelity, but only on the basis of their utility for human purposes. Whitehead's and Leibniz's systems are impressive imaginative creations, though perhaps not as impressive as either Paradise Lost or The Prelude. I prefer Whitehead to Leibniz simply because I think that the footnote to Wordsworth that is part five of Process and Reality offers us a more useful God than Leibniz's. Thank you. Okay, now down to Haraway. I want to take the question of the sixth day seriously in another sense. And so I've titled this commentary, The Sixth Day and the Problem of Human Exceptionalism. 
And I, am, uh, I want to remind myself and uh, all of us of a biographical fact about where and how I was first led to think with Whitehead. It was with a British um, mathematical ecologist, theoretical ecologist and natural historian, a founder of um, uh, theoretical population biology, Evelyn Hutchinson, who was my biology dissertation advisor and who conducted um, lab seminars in which we read the great biologists of Virginia Woolf and Kurt Gödel and Alfred North Whitehead and Simone Weil and others that many others in our department at Yale in biology failed to recognize as crucial to thinking biology. Um, I'm compelled by uh, Isabel Stenger's project of a pensée avec Whitehead, which is to say to think with avec Whitehead in both senses, both to use the tools, the conceptual apparatus, the technical uh, possibilities that are invented by Whitehead's speculative technology to do certain things with, and also to think with him to something else, to think with Whitehead, uh, to be lured by Whitehead's own abstractions to a kind of coherence provoked by some kind of sense of the failure of the abstractions that we currently have at our disposal, to somehow to be in the process of of the becoming of other coherences, not in some kind of romantic, emergent um, unfolding of all which was already potential, but rather some kind of coming to terms which that which, uh, with that which is at stake, to somehow get it what is at stake in some way that thinking with Whitehead might help. Now, Isabel Stengers opens her account of the sixth day, Whitehead's account of the sixth day, with a quote that hasn't yet reemerged explicitly among us that I want to foreground, and it is, the account of the sixth day should be written. He gave them speech and they became souls. And she differentiates between to give and to become, and uses this quote not in the metaphorical sense in which others might wish to appropriate it, but rather to point out the technical, crucial, consequential difference between what humanity was given and what humanity became, and to use that to argue against specifically, I believe, the kind of um, direction that Wittgenstein might take us uh, in terms of the question of language. Okay? Now, um, let me remind myself and us for just a minute about what thinking with Whitehead through thinking with Stengers might commit us to in such a way that I could take up the question of the sixth day around a problem that I believe is urgent among us and that I feel as urgent both as a biologist, a lapsed biologist and a lapsed philosopher, a speculative thinker given to troping but who hates imprecision. Okay? Now, Stengers reminds us that doing speculative philosophy is about, quote, enabling us to resist all perspectives which would involve shedding that mode of functioning which is our soul, or to resist those perspectives which propose that mankind is the only point in a pointless universe. That the distinction between to be given and to become must concern whatever exists. 
for Whitehead, whatever comes into being that which he names actual entities. And in becoming of an actual entity, the potential unity of many entities in disjunctive diversity acquires the real unity of an active, uh, excuse me, of an actual entity. Sentences sometimes give one trouble in one's nightmares. Becoming is not to be demonstrated. It is rather a matter of sheer disclosure, which I believe, as Rorty led us to understand, is not in the Hegelian tradition, including in its Heideggerian versions of unconcealment, but something else. It is something that is surely about the passionate love of reasons, need for reasons, felt being in reasons that also gets it that we have no sufficient reasons for that which truly is urgent. Um, and that if something is to emerge that can somehow confront, bring some kind of unity to disjunctive diversity, it will not be because we have sufficient reasons. Okay. Uh, and therefore, we cannot explain away, either by the temptation of relentless critique, always cleaning the toilet, uh, as my translation of relentless critique needs to be done, but there's a whole house out there, uh, or through the scientific uh, commitment to believing that we have almost sufficient reasons in some mode of explaining everything which has a point by that which is, does not have a point. Okay, explaining the point by the pointless. Uh, we will call that a certain kind of scientism. So neither critique nor scientism will do, nor reverence. Uh, that won't do either, although uh, to be reverent is perhaps a mode of attention that we would uh, do with re-understanding. Um, but rather we are required to understand but not to explain while remaining committed to reasons. Uh, that's the conundrum. Now. I'm going to pay attention not to actual entities, which give me a great deal of trouble, which I tried to explain to Isabel the other night over smoked salmon and tabbouleh and other kinds of things which I thought might help, um, that I really have a hard time with the atomic, uh, eterna not eternality, but atemporality. I have a hard time with actual entities, but I am right at home in what Whitehead called societies. And then if I approach it that way, I think I can get it. Okay, now um, Isabel Stengers leads us to pay attention to certain kinds of societies uh, that the sixth day is about. Okay, and I'm going to do some thinking with Stengers, thinking with Whitehead, to look at those societies in which human beings and other animals um, are in at stake with and for each other, in a way that makes us rethink the two key images in Stengers paper and in Whitehead, namely the sixth day itself, what happened on that day, and the question of the crossing of the Rubicon. Okay? Now, being something of a literalist, I felt I really had to turn to Genesis. So I opened the book at what I thought was going to be chapter one, and I thought it was going to get me pretty much to chapter one uh, and the relevant verses of the sixth day, but the book fell open and kind of what a born again, uh, I don't know, it fell open elsewhere, which is to say it fell open oddly, on, at Genesis 8, on the 601st day, 27th day, sec, uh, I'm 601st year, second month, 27th day, which is to say the day that Noah was told by God to get off the ark 
um, he says, God said to Noah, go forth from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, you in the patrilineage, and bring forth with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth or swarm on the earth in another really interesting translation, English translation. So Noah did it. And every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves upon the earth, went forth by families out of the ark. Well, chastened by Noah, I nonetheless went to Genesis 1, 24 to 31, which is to say the account of the sixth day. And like Isabel, I had forgotten, partly because I was struck by the problem of being given speech and becoming soul, and the peculiarity of what counts as soul for humanity, which is being a creature among creatures and yet being peculiar. So I thought that that being peculiar was what the sixth day was all about. But of course, any of you who read the Bible know that isn't so. Because what God actually did on the sixth day is let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds and it was so and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the cattle according to their kinds and everything that creeps upon the ground according to its kind and God saw that it was good and then he got around to making man in his own image finally okay and the first thing he gave man was in fact not speech but dominion um, over all these kinds and God was stressing the goodness of seed and the goodness of kind and the propagation uh, in the tutelage and dominion and utility to this creature who had been, who actually got speech as a way of fulfilling dominion, which is to say naming. Okay? So that speech actually was not what God gave Adam. Whitehead was in fact wrong in an interesting way. Uh, and um, it was only because I fell into the 27th day of the second month um, that I think I have a different problem. And so the problem of the sixth day is actually about all of the critters who somehow proliferate on that day. And the position that humanity adopts is of having speech through dominion and therefore becoming soul in a particular mode of historical experience that is producing the death of the planet, say I because I am compelled by the urgency of the way humanity must be with, becoming with all of the other critters of the sixth day. And I would like to remind us just for a minute of all of the ways in which the problem of new abstractions is urgent. And I would call to our attention the following, I'm going to get there in my other way, the following list. If we're considering this way of being with, perhaps we should think of the spider goat that a graduate student visiting at UC Santa Cruz is making me pay attention to. The bioengineered goat uh, who carries a gene from a particular spider that produces a particularly interesting protein molecule um, that is part of its silk fabric that is really crucial for the building of better uh, flak jackets. Uh, very, very important fiber uh, for military uh, concerns around the protection of mobile, mobile infantry in very, with very light uh, protection. The spider goat, Anko Mouse, the critter engineered to be my surrogate for breast cancer. Um, the uh, questions of food among us and what modes of life, who lives and who dies inside which food, 
being reminded of Sidney Mintz's concern with sugar, the plant sugar, and who lives and who dies inside that molecule, um, who lives and who dies inside the new modes of becoming with uh, that are being invented among us, uh, including by those who consider the question of responsibility, that is to say, who's responsible for what, to be the principal question that we have to answer. Or I think about the questions of domestication and the restoration ecologies that put, put wolves and dogs and pastoralists and herbivores and hikers and tourists and mountains in Switzerland together rather differently because the wolves have migrated, among other places, out of the former uh, Soviet countries uh, as well as out of Italy in a sort of repopulating areas where heritage agriculture is attempting to be established, maintained in terms of the question of um, a kind of accountable meat-eating practice over and against the animal industrial process uh, and you know, walking, promenading practices through the areas where large guardian dogs are being brought to protect flocks against the newly immigrant Italian wolves while the tourists walk through and get taught by these trilingual brochures about how to be properly polite as they walk through the landscape. These, these sort of societies, societies of societies, where what is at stake is modes of life. Um, it seems to me about the question of the sixth day in a rather urgent way. I could go on and on about the many ways that the questions of the sixth day are urgent. Okay? Now, let me go for a minute, go back to Whitehead and Stengers, and um, remind, remind ourselves of what Richard Rorty also told us, uh, that becoming is not to be demonstrated. It is a matter of sheer disclosure, which is not to say it is a matter of, of, of uh, giving up, uh, of somehow feeling that, that is instead of the passion and indeed life-dependent relation to reasons. Uh, she also reminds us that whatever endures is a society of actual entities, not a res verae, not res verae. Endurance is, for better or worse, an achievement, the achievement of a feature that goes on mattering. Well, I think we need to achieve certain kinds of endurances, for better and for worse, that are not yet among us, as other modes of endurance are indeed coming apart. And this is where the lure of abstraction, it seems to me, becomes useful. This is why I like to think with Stengers, thinking with Whitehead. So, to remind ourselves, man in the sixth day of the Genesis version, which is, uh, Whitehead neatly forgets part of it, gets speech because he was given dominion and becomes a certain kind of soul that is serving us ill. Um, and furthermore, that the crossing of the Rubicon, Whitehead's other great image for that which makes humanity humanity, is not just any old river, which of course Stengers also signals, but it happens to be the river that distinguishes the Roman Republic from the Roman Empire. It happens to be precisely the river that might be figured as the origin of the problem of Western colonialism and the question of who crosses whose river into where, thank you, and which, what, what will count as law and what will count as order and what will count as reason, and who is autochthonous in Europe after all. I believe the Rubicon is precisely the key river to think about this, the sixth day, but I would suggest not, as Whitehead himself understood the Rubicon, could not understand the Rubicon. So, how do I think about these things? Well, as my colleagues are regularly shamed to realize, the only way I think about anything these days is, is with dogs. I take becoming with very seriously, and of course, the very reason that I hate Deleuze with a, a biting passion and refuse to write about him except in the mode of cleaning the toilet, the critic is not yet under control in me as I face this man. 
uh, particularly as he writes with Guattari in the Becoming Animal chapter, chapter, because as he says, anyone who cares about cats and dogs is a fool, and he does not mean by that his own idiot, who is not a fool. Okay? Uh, and his figure of utter, utter uh, abandonment of lines of flight and becoming and multiplicity and everything, which is not Muller and getting the wolf man right, is the old woman with her little foo-foo dog in Paris, the kind of fat old woman with her toy dog, it is the only thing that actually makes me love the sight of fat old women with their toy dogs. Okay, so I am going to take seriously the debased relationship okay, of uh, human beings in a $35 billion a year global industry with their pet dogs. Okay, I'm going to take seriously the dogs of neoliberal, neoliberal capital with a $12 billion a year pet food industry, which is, by the way, the same amount we pay for our cholesterol control statins. Uh, so when you consider the $12 billion a year economy in terms of what we pay for cholesterol lowering because we're eating too much of the meat for the meat industrial complex and so on, it has a rather different feel to it. Okay. But I'm going to inhabit the debased relationship of a middle-aged white woman in the central valleys of California in the fairgrounds of agribusiness land training with an Australian shepherd to play a sport called agility, utterly arbitrary, the stuff of those with disposable income and not enough real research to do. And I'm going to talk about the question of a training relationship as a place where I think sheer disclosure uh, is at stake in an interesting way. Getting it is at stake in an interesting way that absolutely requires precision, skill, reasons, uh, the constructing of modes of endurance. But where getting it is perhaps something uh, uh, something else, but it is not uniquely human, as of course Stengers herself emphasizes, a kind of getting it of becoming with in a particular practice of training to play a sport okay, in the Central Valley of California. Now, a training relationship I learned, I did not learn this in teaching with human beings, a training relationship involves the capacity to play and to be inventive semiotically even while being astonishingly committed to the removal of ambiguity from communication, something I've never really tried to do, um, the uh, disciplining of trope to unique meaning, because you're working with another critter whose primary modes of functioning are not linguistic in a Wittgensteinian sense, and you are not, this is where I think I part company from Dick's statement, uh, that um, if you can't say it in words, you don't really understand it. Because I, I understand that within a certain meaning of the word understand. But I think Whitehead and Stengers are getting at something else that is um, in an interesting way not Wittgensteinian, that this training relationship, I believe, is leading me to need to think about in order to think about the problem with the Rubicon and the sixth day as I believe we now inhabit that uh, inherited set of stories. Okay? So the ability to play. That is to say, when you're working with another social, a member of another social species to accomplish something which is natural to neither of you, that is the, the beauty of a sport, the rules are arbitrary, of course your biodynamic inheritance makes it possible for you both to do it, but it's that, it is non-functional, it is non-adaptational, it is not natural to either of you, it is rule-bound in the sense of arbitrary, and it requires you to invent with each other coherence which is not natural, in the sense of already there, but which might possibly be possible might come into, might become. <laughs> a mode of coherence might happen, <laughs> okay? But you will have to get it. 
So if you do not learn to play with this non fundamentally, I mean, there may be some linguistic properties to most of the other social species, but they're uninteresting for this purpose. The linguist linguistic, okay? They're uninteresting. But um, to somehow um, communicate to each other, play, which is to say, in Gregory Bateson's sense, a space of invention, a space of a something happening which was not yet, which is, I believe, co-invented among creatures of the sixth day, okay? Something that allows the creatures in the training relationship to take a risk. It is possible to train coercively. It is possible to train with the Rubicon as your fundamental imperial line of uh, uh, demarcation. It is possible to impose human law on other critters in a mode of command. It is entirely possible, but if you do that, you will regularly not win in agility. Now, if you happen to be a highly competitive daughter of a sports writer and you really want to win, okay, you, cannot play, you cannot train coercively because your dog will refuse to co-invent with you the kind of getting it that has you dancing over an obstacle course in some kind of mode of coherence, which is, it's not like you can't describe it verbally, because of, of course you can, um, but you won't get it that way. Okay, um, it will be necessary but not sufficient, your verbal descriptions, including of your training methodologies. So it is my claim that my dog, Cayenne, and I get something when we run well that rests on now six and a half years of disciplined training. Okay, that produces a kind of um, uh, disclosure in the actual achievement of a coordinated run. Okay? that I believe Stenger's thinking with Stenger's thinking with Whitehead tells me about. So I will finish by reading you a short piece about what, how it came undone, which may help to explain what I think is done, what the mode of coherence, or indeed the soul, that I believe these two societies, a dog and a human being are both societies, somehow made something else cohere and endure that I will call a mode of feeling, a mode of historical feeling. This is radically historical. I assure you dogs and people have not done this all the time. Not only did Plato and Aristotle not understand conscious experiences, I assure you this mode of being with, becoming with rather, um, is uh, historically, uh, you know, new. <laughs> not good, not bad. In this sense, it, it is not all the time everywhere. This is not about humanity and dogs as species types. It is about an achievement in this complicated agribusiness fairgrounds. Okay, so, this is from um, a piece I'm writing called Training in the Contact Zone, which is, takes the Rubicon seriously. The contact zone is the name for a yellow painted area of a piece of equipment in agility. It's a yellow zone on a piece of wood. It's the contact zone where the dog has to do something in particular, has to touch it with at least one toenail before going on to the next obstacle or will be faulted. And again, you won't win, says a highly competitive sports writer's daughter. Okay. So training in the contact zone is really, really important. And it's really hard for you and the dog to figure out how to, uh, how to do it. Because the dog has no idea that touching a piece of yellow paint is a goal in life, right? Uh, so there has to be some kind of coming to agreement about this being crucial before you can go on to the next point. And it was really hard. And it involved authority. It inf indeed, it, even, it involves dominion. Uh, it was non-optional. And it was my criterion. And I made her learn it. I could not escape the questions of dominion and authority in this relationship. But I could not make her learn it outside also getting the um, Batesonian meta uh, 
play issue. I could not get it outside of a co-invented spontaneity two. Okay, it's the double. So, in practice, this is from training in the context. So, a little essay I'm writing on this problem. In practice, a couple of weeks ago, with Rob near Watsonville, Cayenne and I had an interesting experience that I suspect you can relate to. I wrote this to my other dog people. The class is at night, 8 to 9.30 p.m., and it has about a dozen teams in it. In short, the class is too big and often a bit chaotic for those of us who are tired by that way anyway. Many nights, many nights my concentration is iffy. But that night, both Kyan and I were glued to each other's souls and did not make a mistake over several runs with difficult sequences and discrimination. <coughs> then, at 9.25, we had our last run, one with only 10 obstacles, albeit with a couple of challenging discriminations. Do you go through a tire or over a jump? They're side by side. You're running fast. How, about, how do you tell the difference? Um, one of the, th the discriminations was one of the themes of the night. Okay. Now, none of these so far have given us any trouble. We did fine until the last discrimination in the last run. Then, in a nanosecond, we came apart, literally, and each went a different way. We each stopped instantly on the course, no longer on the same course, and we looked at each other with a blatantly confused look on her dog face and my human face, eyes questioning, each body-mind bereft of its partner. I swear I heard a sound like Velcro ripping when we came apart. We were no longer whole. I turned on time in the right spot. My shoulders were doing the technically correct thing. Cayenne turned well and correctly too. And we came apart. We just looked at each other, period. It was not a technical mistake, actually, for either of us. Rob, our teacher, saw nothing wrong and didn't know what happened. I swear Cayenne and I both heard the Velcro ripping when our cross-species conjoined mind-body, which we are when we run well, came apart. I've experienced losing her mentally before, of course, as she has me. Almost always the literal error of a course, a tiny but fatal glitch in timing, is a symptom of such a loss of each other. But this was different, much more intense, maybe because we were both tired and we had been unconsciously but strongly glued all night. She looked abandoned and I felt abandoned. I experienced the confused look we gave each other to be full of loss and yearning, and I truly think that, what her expressive canine be that that's what her expressive canine being was screaming too. I think the communication between us was as unambiguous as a play bow would be in its context. Just as a play bow binds the responding partners in play, somehow we unbound each other from the game. Something severed us, and all of this happened in much less than a second. So have you read Philip Pullman's series, The Golden Compass, The Subtle Knife, and The Amber Spyglass, in which a human demon link is part of the fictional world? The demon in this world is an animal familiar, essential to the human, and vice versa. And the link is so strong and necessary to being whole that its deliberate severing is the violent crime driving the plot. At one point, the narrator says, Will, too, felt the pain where his demon had been a scalded place of acute tenderness that each breath tore at with cold hooks. Earlier, the narrator described the crime of severing demon and human in these terms. While there is a connection, of course, the link remains. Then the blade is brought down between them, severing the link at once. They are separate entities. Now, surely I'm dramatizing the rip between Cayenne and me on a little agility discrimination, you know, tire or jump, late on a Wednesday night in March in a Central California horse arena. And yet this tiny tear in the fabric of being told me something precious 
about the weave of the whole cell's commitment that can bind companion species in a game of conjoined living in which each is more than one but less than two. We trained hard for over six years, actually, to develop this kind of link, this mode of endurance. But both its coming into be, its becoming, its coming into being, and its coming apart are only made possible by that discipline, not made by it. Coming apart in Sonoma County. Donna. Thanks so much. Now, the way things are going to move from here is uh, Isabel will have 10 minutes to respond to these two very interesting and somewhat diametric uh, presentations. Uh, and then uh, there will be a conversation between her and uh, Donna and, and Dick um, for another 10 minutes. Uh, and at that point, we will open uh, the, to the floor uh, and the uh, the live participants, the on-site participants, will have 20 minutes to yourselves. Uh, and, and after that, we will then uh, introduce remarks uh, that come to us online. Okay, so first, anyway, a response by Isabel, and then a, a brief conversation among the three panelists. Uh, and then the audience gets to jump in. Well, <coughs> indeed, uh, as you said, uh, Stephen, I, I am really in between. Uh, <laughs> I am in a state of a strong tension because uh, I would say that uh, it's very hard to answer Donna because I would wish to, to follow her because she's uh, producing, pro proposing, in, in white term, I mean, proposition, meaning impacting. Uh, so many things that I would wish to go back at work again and to experiment together her, her propositions and can Whitehead's concept or other concepts help to, to celebrate it not better than she did, but in another way because, because it's because of many ways of celebration that maybe something can endure and not, to, and not be reducible to somebody thinking something and become uh, a new important habit of thought. What she gave me here, I mean, uh, with this proposition is, is as a beauty that uh, when uh, working with Whitehead, I was al always helped by the, the feeling he had been and he knew about mathematics as an inventive, I mean, uh, experience. So uh, understanding, as I told it uh, just here, uh, as more geometrical, but the, the feeling of completion when the definition of uh, mathematical beings also tells what this mathematical being is able to produce, which are produ uh, explicitly in demonstration, but as White had said, the demonstration is just laborious verification. So the mathematical understanding was my guiding trend uh, against the idea that understanding is only something, uh, you know, intuitive in a, a lacking of uh, rationality sense. And now she's giving me this experience of training. And I think that the beauty of it is the, the possibility to link both, I mean, to have 
both the experience of the trainer and uh, the sharing and being coming together and sharing crucial experience of the trainer and the experience of the mathematician on the same boat, not to pick and choose, but to, to, to celebrate together this new kind of togetherness which our Western traditions tend to separate. The mathematician being the very model of rationality and the trainer being some kind of, uh, I mean, yes, indeed, Deleuze, that's one of his weaknesses. He could celebrate mathematicians as semi-gods, but he had nothing to say to, to the old lady with her dog. That's the weakness, but I would say that uh, I enjoy more the, the force of the new things than the weakness, which is indeed uh, social habits. I mean, uh, there where you, you did not think and just accepted, just tell, told yes. So every time something you t told yes as an habit may be transformed, uh, it is, and White had helped me to, to, to tell it like that in a most technical and literal sense and not metaphorical sense. It is a cosmological event. So I think that what you proposed is a, a matrix of cosmological events and indeed we need it, I mean, we need it. And to me it is a very great thing that such a matrix of new and uh, carefully to be cared for <laughs> not to become a slogan, you know, but really uh, carefully cultivated cosmological events would come from U.S. because I am part of this uh, region of the world and traditional uh, philosophical region of the world where, Andalusian tradition, where we feel that U.S. is a place where philosophy was assassinated. So this is... <laughs> So that where philosophy was assassinated, new germs of thinking as figures would be born again, I mean, which are not philosophy anymore, but which takes again and with which new coalition may be possible uh, is for me a, a, such a very important point. And a very important point because also it's a political point because uh, I would say philosophy as an exercise for thought, I felt it and I know Deleuze felt it and probably Whitehead too. He was thinking in front of his students. I am trying to also. But it's mainly a solitary event. Why when uh, Donna is speaking, uh, <coughs> I mean all the, the motion, the collective effort of feminists and now also of her dog is coming to play and is coming to play a, a very active role. I mean, she's never alone. And this is, I think, U.S. gift to uh, old solitary European thinkers. <laughs> now, uh, as I said, I have one conviction. If, it is, if I was born in U.S., I would never have been a philosopher. I would never have been attracted to the choice uh, Rorty uh, proposed of inheriting uh, Wittgenstein in terms of cognitivism, how language works, and or deciding which language game is best for which purpose, human purpose. Uh, but Whitehead 
tells me, demands from me, that I would not judge because I feel that uh, Richard Horty's proposal is indeed a witness for what White had said made us creature of the, uh, of the sixth day, that is a feeling for unrealized possibility. So I think that uh, to be able to think in terms of the possibility of sanely, wisely deciding what is, which language game is best for which human purpose is really a, a beautiful, a, a beautiful, but I cannot share it, uh, a beautiful feeling for an unrealized possibility. I mean, the possibility that we would become wise and be able to choose between language game and to identify in a wise manner uh, a useful uh, human purpose. If I must resist to this proposition, it may be because I am a woman, even if it's more solitary woman because I'm from Europe than the Nays, uh, and I, I very strongly feel that uh, this wisdom, which is a very uh, sane proposition, uh, is for me a bit too linked with the wastebasket philosophy. I, if I, I, it's not because of a, a, an utter attachment that I want to resist to the temptation of the wastebasket philosophy, you know, putting in a wastebasket what would not be useful, but because I deeply feel that uh, it feels to me like an end-of-the-game philosophy, an end-of-the-game where we, Western people, would announce the end of the game uh, to other people. I want to feel the presence of, in his paper, Horty was quoting the Tinter, he did not read it, but the Tintern Bay uh, experience of Woodsworth feeling of presence. And I try to feel and keep feeling the presence of those so many others. We were, we, we were disqualified to, uh, to produce as legitimate their own dreams in all plays, in all language games. So uh, if ever we, we end the game, I wish it to be together with them and not as elders knowing better and telling them, well, we have finished the game and uh, we wish you to understand it's better for you to, to do as we do. No, I want to, so for me, Whitehead indeed is the, the, the vehicle I found to inherit my own traditions without putting it in the wastebasket, whatever the temptation to do it, whatever the temptation to, 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 to have a wastebasket philosophy. I always felt that uh, <laughs> If I don't want to separate others from their resource of thinking, I have not to separate myself from my resource of thinking because the heroism uh, entailed by separating yourself to, from your own resource makes you a proponent for others to separate themselves, and I don't want that. I want to, to belong to my foolish tradition, to a criminal tradition, and try to separate the, the, the foolishness from the crime 
And I think that I, I feel maybe that uh, we are uh, together in this. I would uh, just take a small example of uh, the, the, what is philosophy good for. I think you, you understand what it is good for me. It is good for me to keeping me alive, alive and thinking and hoping and not despairing and being guilty. It's uh, being responsible, but not guilty, uh, indeed. But uh, I would come back to, to the poet pro poetry problem. Uh, what can philosophy hope to do that poetry cannot? And it is very interesting that Richard Rorty uh, took the stick uh, to beat Whitehead, the stick Whitehead himself proposed, since he said that. Uh, prose is doing in a laborious way uh, what poetry poets are doing in a beautiful way. I would am amplify what they answer, which uh, Richard Horty quoted but did not comment upon. To produce, if philosophy has to do uh, in a prose what uh, poetry do uh, as it, their, their own way of doing it, it's to pro produce a verbal symbolism manageable for use in other connection of thoughts. And this, I would feel, is a pragmatic answer and a situated answer. And this is precious, pragmatic and situated. I like my pragmatism situated, never forgetting who is speaking and what is the pragma, including all those who are not speaking while I am speaking. Uh, Poetry itself may indeed, modern poetry, I mean Western modern poetry, which was named poetry. <laughs> we are going on naming things. And we did name something like poetry. May well, as it is named, become a tool for judgment. Indeed, we may know, I mean it is proposed to us to know that poetry is, is a language game fulfilling some important human needs. But we, Maybe, I do not say uh, Richard Horty does it, I think even he, he, he doesn't do it, he doesn't want to do it, so it's not a judging, but it's a feeling of danger. Uh, we may, since we know that poetry is a language game, we can go back to the others, which are desperately mixing poetry with what should be a matter for argumentative, rational argument. And I would say that Whitehead's attempt was indeed that the engineer, or whatever, never forget, never may forget about what the poet did express. So to have language games uh, being all present, and we not the master of the choice and of the purpose, leaving what is a human purpose into the cosmological development, unknown cosmological development. We can just witness, witness with the difference between Whitehead's <coughs> question and Donna Haraway's questions. This, there is another epoch at work and it's a matter of celebration and of becoming worthy of this new epoch and trying to inhabit it. So I think that uh, indeed Richard Horty by distinguished language game wants to be able to, to to respect them all together, not to reduce one to the other. And here I think we are really agree in strong agreement, but our feeling of what is dangerous is different. Uh, I would say that the problem of la bêtise for me is really a, a very, very, uh, I mean, important, crucial feeling. And 
I am afraid that the clean distinction of what is poetry uh, may be vulnerable to it is only poetry. It is only human fancy. And I feel that Whitehead is defending me against this only poetry, which is not Richard Horty's choice. But maybe in order just to, to put in a, a nutshell, not our contradiction, but our divergence in what matters, because it's diverging in what matters. And, and Whitehead would have said, yes, it is, and do not exaggerate and turn it into a contradiction. It would be between irony and humor. I think that Richard Horty uh, produced the, the, the interest of the ironical stance. I was always interested in the humor stance, knowing that we are embarked, knowing that what we feel and think with what make us feel and think is epochal, is not ours to decide, but that, it, that it's crucially matter for us anyway. And this is humor, being able to, to, to hold the two together, that it's not mine, but that, that it's crucially matter and makes me, and that I am not diminished or heroically uh, expelled from myself by knowing that I, what makes me think is not mine, but that it turns me into something more careful and humorous and maybe defend me against the poison of the tradition, which is mine, which is judgment. Thank you. Um, I guess the big difference between Isabel Singers and myself is we don't find the same things urgent. Um, there is in both her and Deleuze a fear that there is something going on, the hegemony of objective explanation, uh, some kind of reductionist effort uh, that needs to be countered by philosophy. And I don't see it. I don't see what the danger is. Uh, I mean, there is a tradition of science worship, uh, a tradition of saying what science comes up with is not just one description useful for, for predictive purposes, but the very intrinsic nature of reality itself. I'm not sure that this tradition of science worship has any terribly pernicious practical effects such that philosophers need to get together and do something about it urgently. As if they could. <laughs> uh, and I, when Stenger says that um, philosophy is good for keeping us alive, me, keeping her alive, well, I think for any of us who spend a lot of our time reading the section of a library called the philosophy section, uh, yeah, it's what keep us, keeps us alive, the way the people who read other sections of the library are kept alive by history, by poetry, and whatever they started reading keeps them alive. I don't think that there's a special area of culture called philosophy that is, so to speak, better at keeping one alive than other parts of culture. And so I... Uh, so... Coming to Whitehead and Wordsworth, 
Um, I'm inclined to say Whitehead thought he was going to save us from something that we didn't need saving from because the romantic poets had already saved, it from, saved us from it, <laughs> saved us from it. Uh, and that the attempt to say we've misplaced concreteness, uh, that we've overvalued this and undervalued that, was something we already got out of the rise of the literary culture that began with the Romantic period. And it isn't something that philosophy needed to recapitulate. But this may be, this claim may be overgeneralized. Uh, philosophy, and for that matter poetry, are local phenomena and the situation in Europe is perhaps not the situation in Britain and America. I, one, one thing I hope Isabel Stengers would expand on is the, the, what she called the Delizian idea that philosophy went to America to be assassinated. I didn't get that. Uh, I, I, I would have thought that, you know, we have, we have a different philosophical tradition, but it's, you know, good as anybody else's philosophical tradition. <laughs> he says plaintively. <laughs> Not dead. <laughs> Should I add to it? This is a discussion, so. Yeah, I, I think, think it makes should, more sense to, then, think, and to then, think about uh, that now. Yeah. Yes. No, I, I think indeed uh, the conversation is both in, in important and difficult because we come from different regional place and and uh, the very fact that in what is called western tradition there would be such different uh, regions is uh, very 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 interesting and worth emphasizing and indeed uh, if I turn into a philosopher it was a, I can just speak as a witness to my region and not to get outside it and, and judge but if I I came to philosophy, I became a philosopher. It was because my first love, it's a bit like Donna, uh, but she, she was not, uh, the, the, the possibility was not to turn into a philosopher. That's the difference in between region and history. Uh, but my first interest was in sciences. And I can, maybe uh, philosophers do not need to protect us against objective reductionism, but I really felt the need to protect science, scientists themselves against their, their vision of what they were doing and producing. If I was very sensitive to uh, Deleuze's theme of the Betise, it is because I could uh, really live through the, 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 the intermingling with between living thought, creative thought in sciences, and la bêtise, and the inter-struggle. So I, I did not turn to philosophy in order to protect non-scientists against science reductionism, but really to produce propositions, I would say, which may have a sense to, to protect scientists against what they are feeling they are thinking, they are, they are proposed to think, they are doing. And maybe it, it may have importance beyond science itself. 
so I am, it's not as a philosopher that I am taking it as my duty pro to protect anyone against objective reductionism. It is just, uh, I mean, I would say even protecting myself when I came out of chemistry. I did not know how to think that reality was not made of atoms and molecules. I mean, I, I knew it was, but I did not know the world to, the, the words to, to, to both celebrate uh, chemistry, molecules, and atoms, and the fact that the world was not constituted. I was in a, you know, perplexed state. So, so I came to philosophy in order to protect, not, not to protect, but to create the possibility to, 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 to understand and not to, to destroy uh, what was in the process of producing betis for myself. When I say I survived, it is against la betise. So really, the fact that for me, philosophy was that, was the great luck of my life, which is that I discovered about together Deleuze and Whitehead, and that they did, produ they did their propositions, had this impact of my, in my, on my own experience, that working with that, I could come to produce for myself, thinking with both of them, but in a very different way, because you cannot think with Deleuze as you think with Whitehead. They do not, I mean, Deleuze is not calling for that. I mean, it's intrusive to, to think with Deleuze. Um, but together, with this tension, it was a space to produce propositions, maybe to civilize, make uh, protest against la bêtise, uh, the people I loved, which are also scientists. So I was not nourished by poetry. I was nourished by scientists. And I wanted to protect them against la bêtise, which is not their, theirs. They are not producing that, it. It's the social environment, the way we describe them, the way we understand them with such terms as objectivity, rationality. We poison them, and they put us in danger. So this is what I would answer, but that's biographical. But I think that philosophy is also a way to produce, to transmute the biographical peculiarity into matter for thinking. So there, is, there cannot be contradiction, there can just be very cautious. I mean, uh, we, are to get, we are both human, but I would say that coming into agreement would, would ask for as much trained discipline as the agreement with, of Donna with Cayenne. Not telling who is the dog, but I mean it's... <laughs> it, is, it is such a putting oneself at risk and uh, uh, wishes both to exactitude and not trusting exactitude. Well, I think that um, what has emerged that I, th I think is an agreement, which is what it is um, urgent is a situated matter, um, and that these things are not lived in the same way. Uh, and that, Isabel phrased it at one point in terms of uh, that which makes us think is ethical. Um, 
And uh, of course, that tendency to exaggerate the word epical is maybe I would maybe find a smaller term. But, <laughs> but <laughs> no, sorry, no, but I'm, for a while, then, if a rabbit <laughs> is running away, it I'm, is I'm epical. Yeah, <laughs> so life and death matter. That <laughs> okay. Now, like Isabel, um, I came to the appreciation of this particular way of think, doing speculative philosophy through formation as a scientist, which is to say a graduate student in biology in this particular case, but in a particular way that I agree with Dick that the particular problem of the difference between primary and secondary qualities as proposed in the 17th century and the question of simple location and the, the, the bifurcation of nature and that particular mode of what came to be called reductionism is not an urgent problem these days in that form. Um, and I don't, however, uh, I disagree that um, the poets um, in some sense solved it as opposed to spoke to an entire domain of the people, including those people to do science in other moments of their lives, in such a way that felt radically different from what doing science felt like, uh, which is more what I think what Isabel talked about and I experienced being a biologist in the graduate school in the late 1960s in the middle of the Vietnam War in relationship to the question of the um, science for the people issues around the use of chemical herbicides in Vietnam and the electronic battlefield and the question of command, control, communication, cybernetics and the question of scientifically grounded racism and the question of sexual and gender difference and the question, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The urgent issues, okay, which turned most of my friends who weren't scientists into enemies of science because of this really peculiar fantastic formation, fantasy formation, which was fear of reductionism. Uh, it was a fantasy. There was no reductionism going on in that way, except ideologically, which is a big except. Uh, <laughs> it's a giant except. That is, in fact, not what scientists were doing. But it made, um, even though they themselves sometimes presented themselves as if they were doing that, anybody who inhabited the laboratory, and that was the great innovation of science studies, to actually uh, describe what was going on, and I assure you it was indescribable as reductionism. Uh, indescribable. That, you know, many science studies people, probably Bruno Latour most creatively among them, Folk, many creative science studies people got it. The reductionism was not what people were doing, even though that might very well be what they were describing themselves to be doing. Um, nonetheless, I experienced these questions uh, as very urgent that divided my people into um, those who would have nothing to do with the natural sciences except as critics and those who regarded the natural sciences as a, as a superior mode of truth. My first job at the University of Hawaii was to teach fashion design majors and tourist industry management majors and other, quote, non-science majors, close quote. Growing up as a Catholic, I understood Catholics and non-Catholics, and I got it right away that the non-science majors were outside the one true universal church. <laughs> to teach the non-science majors the superiority of the history of positive science over and against religion and politics. And we were supposed to teach example after example of reason against opinion. This was in the late 1960s, uh, it was 1970, in the midst of Hawaii as the strategic command for the uh, Pacific War, for the then Pacific War, for the question of war in China, in, in Vietnam. It was impossible 
to teach science that way. And it was also impossible to cease being in love uh, with my science, uh, which you know, was, was variously tied up to all the others. And my science biology and even Lynn Hutchinson's laboratory has, had been taught as deeply tied to speculative philosophy, as well as to the Russell and Whitehead Principia Mathematica book, which is not speculative philosophy. It had been taught tied to Karen Stevens um, and, and Simone Weil, as well as to the Principia Mathematica, as well as to what was going on in the latest arguments about Darwinism, and it's not fundamentally non-teleological, non-design-supporting non modes, and it's non-adaptationist issues, even while adaptation remained of pressing concern to biologists. So it was, I think that with Isabel, what I find life-affirming, if not exactly survival, because after all, I eat because of the Cold War and having gotten money out of it, uh, but nonetheless, <laughs> soul-surviving issues, um, yes. actually are partly linked to speculative philosophy in terms of it's continually entertaining um, the problem of loving things that everybody else wants you to sort out into neatly distinct piles. And um, if you're going to remain a thinker when you're in love with things that you're not allowed to be simultaneously in love with, which is, let's say, the oxidation reduction um, systems as they are unpacked in the structure of the cell membrane in the late 1960s as you understand the, the substructural um, bi structural biochemistry of the mitochondrial and, and um, the mitochondrial membranes which I experienced as erotically arousing and tried to describe that to a consciousness raising group um, in, in women's liberation who thought I had seriously lost it because the kinds of things you were supposed to say in consciousness-raising groups had to do with various kinds of sexual violation or desire. Or I never understood desire as these folks were talking about it because I understood desire in terms of the extraordinary liveliness of the mitochondrial membrane. <laughs> I'm serious about that. And I feel that speculative philosophy, I don't know if it's European or American traditions, I think they variously live in both locations, but I experience speculative philosophy as one way to get to keep trying to say that, if that makes any sense. And so, you know, dog training is to mathematics as biology is to the Principia Mathematica, or I don't know, you can build various proportions. Or not. <laughs> so we'd like to begin then with any comments or questions from the uh, on-site uh, audience. And the really then, existing uh, and then we will move. <laughs> yeah, the really, the really existing, but not the only actual Got people. Uh, <laughs> we're going to come back to that distinction in a bit. I can assure you. Uh, and um, uh, but please, so here, if you can come uh, to the mic, and therefore you will be visible and audible. I'm sure I speak for all of us when I say it's been a great honor to hear you all. Thank you so much. Uh, the, this panel has been extremely provoking. And, uh, if you could identify yourself as well. I'm Elizabeth Potter. I'm in uh, Women's Studies and Philosophy at Mills College in Oakland, California. Uh, my uh, question is primarily for uh, Isabel Stanger. Uh, and uh, I'm uh, very drawn to uh, Whitehead. I never studied Whitehead formally, but my undergraduate professor was a Whiteheadian and was taught by Whitehead. And I want uh, to ask you about uh, our maintenance of abstractions, that is our care and our tending 
and our constant critical approach to the abstractions which we must use as we become with uh, our fellow creatures. And my question is very simple. It is that we, um, I'm asking uh, when we maintain these abstractions and produce new propositions, we are constrained by what? That is, uh, we maintain them uh, in the light of what? Um, I'm, it occurs to me that, of course, we maintain them and produce them in the light of our interests, but I'm also uh, interested in anything else that you might add to the list of constraints. Thank you. Uh, the, the beauty with Whitehead uh, is that it is often a matter, not, not so much of jargon, I, I, I was never well there, but of syntax, attention to syntax. Who is doing what? You can say who is living and who is dying, and, but who is doing, who is the active subject? And I would say that what Whitehead first proposes to think it, is that it is not we who maintain abstractions. It's more, since the we is a social continuity, uh, it's more abstraction that maintain us as social continuity. And not only us, also oysters. <laughs> and I, I would say that the difference in degree with uh, Whitehead may be uh, the domination of abstractions. Maybe oysters are more dominated by their habits, habits and abstractions are, I mean, very correlated uh, by their habits, oyster habits, than we are. And um, Cheyenne is a beautiful witness that dogs are not so much dominated by, by usual abstractions, but maybe open to the risk of their abstractions. So I would say that the main problem for Whitehead is not the maintaining of abstraction, but the kind of social situation where we are able to care for abstractions, that is to, to risk them, to learn from them, to pay any, it's, you know, from time to time, I use that expression uh, talking, it's it just come one time in concept of nature, paying due attention, it says that uh, uh, if there is a meaning to be given to nature, it is, and it's a, a bit against phenomenology or any kind of idealism, it is that uh, it's, we may learn from it, we may learn by paying due attention. So paying due attention is a discipline, and it is the only way we can uh, put the abstraction that maintain us at risk, not in order to debunk them, but I would say to civilize them. Uh, while uh, oysters may be more dominated by their own constitutive social abstractions than we are, uh, he would say that we, and probably uh, we uh, rational Western people, are always in danger of exaggerating. That is, to want to confirm our abstraction, to found them. Whitehead is the most anti-fundamentalist philosopher of, I know of. So how to, to protect uh, our abstractions about, uh, against the, the temptation to found them? 
And it is for me, just by chance, for instance, a decision is a lure, is an abstraction. And I think that if he wanted, uh, I mean, one of the meaning of actual occasions as produce, producer producing uh, decision, produced and producing, first producing, then produced by decision, was to be able to use decision, which was a, a, an abstraction which really did matter for him, came to matter for him, uh, but to put it to the test, meaning that when he is defining occasion as deciding things, it is also the way not to put our own experience under the spell of decision. We do not, uh, I mean, decision for us, it's very exaggerated. What we may be responsible of is to risk our abstraction and learn from uh, the interaction, we could say, mm -hmm. between our abstractions and what we meet, what we encounter. So we do not maintain. <laughs> they maintain us, but we may be responsible for the quality of the maintenance, where I come back to the engineer problem. <laughs> it's a loop. Do either of you have a response? Further response? This isn't so much a response to the question as a comment on Isabel Stenger's reply. Perhaps I could put one issue between us by raising the question does the notion of abstraction, you know, could one substitute the notion of language for the notion of abstraction? Could one substitute the notion of words for the notion of abstractions? Uh, if so, I'd, I'd be inclined to say my view is that only new words can save us from old words. Thus, only new abstractions can save us from old abstractions. No use of language is more abstract than another. Blake is as abstract as Newton. Uh, but Stenger sees the need to formulate new abstractions as the result of encounters with something that is not itself an abstraction, not itself more words. Whereas I see it as just words in context, in contest with other words. <laughs> on, on this Wittgensteinian view I'm trying to peddle, there isn't a, a thing outside of language that we encounter and then as a result of encountering it, do something to use new words. Yeah, I want to say something about that because I think that's at the nub of the, um, both what we agree with each other about and disagree with each other about. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that I'm finding the particular little di little discipline you know, that I tried to describe, the little training discipline, it's not a big world-shaking issue. Therefore, it's a good place to, to inhabit. Uh, there's something at risk, but the world's not at risk. <laughs> yeah. um, and it is precisely that there is an abstraction luring our becoming with each other. These are, of course, my words for this that is not fundamentally linguistic, and that is fundamentally can't be, in part because one of the key partners who is a co-player, not merely the material for playing, is not a linguistic critter. 
And there's a deep way in which whatever it is that we do, do when we do it, <laughs> or luring, for, you know, I can say that it's the good run. Now that, that, of course, is a linguistic term. And it's a perfectly good language game for describing um, in, a thick, in a thick and rich sense. Okay, the, the training languages are rather rich. However, they are not what we actually achieve. And I believe that what Stingers and Whitehead are doing has to do with abstraction more in that sense. Um, that, um, that working with a non fundamentally non-linguistic critter, which you may have aspects, teaches me to pay more attention to that, though I don't believe it's only uniquely present there. I think it's actually even generalizable, or in any case, transportable. Um, and that you can't translate abstractions into words. I certainly can't. Not there. And the way I can't is telling me something interesting about how that is true also in other situated um, places of being bored, including the example of the explicit language game of the mitochondrial cell membrane. But there's some kind of coming together of structural functionalism there that is lured by an abstraction that is, is the, the language game is necessary to it, but it is not sufficient for it, I think. And if I may add another <laughs> example, which is not world shattering either, even if it has played a shattering role in, in Western thought, it's uh, mathematics. Mathematics have been celebrated as the, the place where meaning, uh, discursive meaning, is self-sufficient. But when you learn mathematics, and when you try to learn mathematics to somebody who do, do not understand, you, you understand the, the epoch-making difference, the I got it make it, make. I mean before, when you try to, to learn to somebody, you use the words and for you, and it's the great drama of mathematical teacher, those words are self-sufficient. They, they tell you everything you have to understand, and they are mute for the other. Till this I got it experience, which when it comes, can really be celebrated together, but in an asymmetric way, a release for the teacher. And uh, something really new in her or his own way of functioning for the one who got it. I think that mathematics is the place for the greatest power of discursive knowledge and the greater feeling of unpower when somebody doesn't get it, and the, the words which are functioning for you are just mute and unseen, or just to be obeyed, blindly obeyed, and this is not mathematics for the other. I'm going to open this up to a couple of streams that have been broached by uh, some of the online participants. But I, I, wanted to, to ask, I wanted to ask a question, in fact, that has risen from the, the three descriptions here of language. Um, because uh, there was a certain consonance between, Dick, your focus on vocabulary and then your sort of um, um, a, attention to the Adamic language, which is the language of naming. Uh, and what uh, Isabel is, I think, stressing, and which is in some sense counterintuitive with Whitehead, because the first thing that anybody notices in Whitehead is that the words are strange. The words are being used strangely. Um, but I think what you, you said what appealed to you in Whitehead was 
the, um, the basically the syntactic analysis that he permitted. And so that this aspect of language, which is not reducible to names, although one might find them within words by forms of troping and so on and so forth, but uh, that although and one needs to name them, name all syntactic gestures can be named. But so whether uh, the, so partly you were describing a need to go beyond language for one's models of abstraction, and but partly whether to some degree one can find a more generous concept of language that uh, is not, you know, in other words, we're working with, with various models of language here. If anybody wants to comment how this uh, does or does not uh, operate in relation to your understanding of Whitehead. I have a very quick thing to say. I also meant beyond syntax. Yeah. Because I am persuaded by um, a paper by uh, Noam Chomsky and uh, Hauser and a third author I'm blanking on. Uh, that I cannot, um, it is not accurate to say that this social partner of mine is engaged in syntactical production. Um, and together, I am. But what we're doing uh, has aspects of that. Uh, but, and by syntax, I mean something rather strict, which has to do with the infinite recombinability, um, the computational aspects of syntax. I'm taking a fairly strict um, linguist notion of syntax there. However, I do believe, which by the way is what involves, involves inventiveness. I believe that there is a proto-syntactical or some other word we need. I don't want a trope linked to language. That's why I used the word play. Right. And a kind of inventiveness, something that wasn't there, semiotically rich and produced, involving affect, corporeality, semiotic production, but for which syntax is really the wrong word. Not to, it's, it's not just names. Yeah, I, I was uh, we, trying to be a witness of, uh, indeed, the kind of uh, fecundity working and writing with Whitehead uh, entailed for me, I mean. Uh, really, when writing a paper or, or, or the book where I, I, I was uh, filling it, very often I would really hesitate for, for a long time before knowing in this situation who was the active, because syntax is also, also that, what is active, what is passive, what is the, 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 the move of the action, I mean, what is doing what to what. <laughs> and that's, that's how I would uh, uh, understand syntax when I said, we are not maintaining language. Uh, we are not maintaining abstraction. Abstraction maintains us. If you can, and that's the beauty with that. You can, you can hear it like a play of words, or, or as, a, or as a sophisticated play. I mean, uh, theoretically um, sophisticated, proving that I am a sophisticated person. But when writing the book. It was not like that. It was a matter of, uh, I mean, producing, being the site for the production of a, something which, to me, has the impact of a proposition, or just leaving the habit, things in spite of me. Uh, so, so this is what, to me, what I may be doing to, 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 my, to, to my linguistic 
uh, way of being. It's really challenging the usual distribution of what is doing what to what. <laughs> just clarify what I was trying to say about words and abstractions. I think we might be better off if we just dropped the abstract concrete distinction and instead just talked about linguistic practices and non-linguistic practices. When you talk about the distinction between the abstract and the concrete, abstraction looks bad. There's this idea back to the concrete. If you just if you just talk about linguistic and non-linguistic practices. You know what, you know how we conduct some non-linguistic practices. You know how we conduct some linguistic practices. There's no particular reason to think one of them has priority, one of them has to be adequate to the other. They do different things <laughs> for different purposes. Uh, so I'm, when, when Singers began her paper by saying, what, what matters for Whitehead is making perceptible and important the selective interpretive role of abstractions. Well, I guess I don't see, if, if abstractions are just words, I don't think anybody questions that words are selective and interpretive. That's what they're supposed to be. Uh, so I don't, perhaps the biggest difference between me and Stengers is I don't see we need to be warned against this in the way that Whitehead apparently thought we didn't need to be warned against it. But I, I would never say, I mean, it's because I felt my, uh, Whitehead as a, a mathematician that I would never say an abstraction is a word. A circle is a question for a mathematician. It is not a word. And the word can be, be uh, uh, after. So if we agree that mathematics with all this discursive demonstrative uh, knowledge is a, in fact a non-linguistic practice, maybe we can become to, to convert because it becomes interesting. But it's not only uh, the training of a dog, the co-training of a dog and a, 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 a lady. It is also a mathematician. And then back to philosophy, because mathematical understanding was produced as a model of the logos. Um, again, anybody who has in the audience who has a question, please come and stand here. But uh, before then, I wanted to introduce uh, uh, to, to there has been a, a continuous conversation online. Yeah. Which, which um, uh, nobody here, unfortunately, we, we could have it streaming. That would be one way to deal with it uh, in, in, in the future. Um, and all that means people may not listen to what's going on here. So it's a complicated process. But two of the, of the themes, um, and of course online people also can be much more aggressive. Uh, so just to give you two examples, I want to give you some examples of, of, of aggression. So one, uh, I, but these are minor aggression. I just, I just want to point out because they're sort of amusing in tandem. So one, one, one individual said, my problem with Haraway is that she only cares about dogs, doesn't say anything about cats. Um, and another person, another, person, <laughs> another person said, um, Rorty should get himself a dog. So I'm just saying that's a different kind of exchange. But one of the interesting things about this process is it allows that to be articulated in a public forum without it being insulting in the way that it would be in a sort of direct it's passion. It's luring, <laughs> exactly. Um, maybe alluring too. Now, uh, the, the first 
uh, thread that uh, uh, lasted for a little while um, was uh, people online wanted to know more to understand better, and it obviously won't happen in five minutes, um, the, 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 the difficulties uh, with actual occasions, uh, why, why societies are, are sort of uh, intuitively graspable and useful, uh, whereas uh, uh, whatever an actual occasion is uh, seems to be an abstraction in some ways, less concrete, less easy to grab. And so that I'm just throwing that out if you have any remarks on, on that, any of you. It's kind of the other way around. It seems mm -hmm. to me that an actual occasion is that which is, res veri, uh, is in it. Uh, there's a, uh, and, and that's, I keep wanting an example of an actual occasion, and that's exactly <laughs> what I can't have. Right. And I know that, <laughs> but it doesn't stop me from wanting it. Uh, even though I know that an achieved coming together out of the disunities into the thisness that's an actual occasion adds a one to the multiplicity, which is a very odd kind of one already. I can say all these things, but I do kind of get a little yes. crazy uh, by the end of the paragraphs. But you seem to stay remarkably sane. Yes, indeed, <laughs> because my my access uh, for Whitehead was indeed again my my learning in, in I was not bad in the chemistry lab, so I turned to uh, physical chemistry, and this is what led me, uh, led me to to to, to meet Prigogine. So, but it's first because I was not good at lab exercise. <clears throat> but I loved the mathematical understanding of uh, exercise. And uh, if you ask a mathematician, what is a complex number? <laughs> you will get very strange answer. I mean, it's very hard to define. Uh, but the good question is, why do you need that? And then, yeah. Mathematical uh, narratives will follow, and you will understand as he does or she does. I mean, it's not what it is, but why does you need it? And it is the same with uh, with scientists. I mean, what is an electron? Whoa! But I need an electron. Without the electron, I could not understand that and that and that and that situation and uh, the whole achievement of. Uh, but it is to exist in, in experimental terms, is we need it. We have succeeded in achieving a situation where we cannot but recognize that we need it and we could not do without it. So there and... But aren't both complex numbers and electron societies in this, in the last several paragraphs that you spoke? In, in the, what, yes. what is the relation between all, I mean, our need for electron and uh, what we deal with in a lab <laughs> is as difficult to, to, to manage and to comment upon as a question of what is your dog independently of the training uh, occasions which produce a common, a common road between you and the world you have to, to tell about her. I mean, uh, I cannot tell about what is an electron? I can say that everything we tell about electrons are the, the consequences of achieved encounters. 
And each time there is a new achieve, experimental achievement, the electron becomes able to do new things. Are you, are you saying that, uh, the, that within the Whiteheadian system, the actual entity uh, functions much as an electron would function for uh, the chemist insofar as, insofar as it is something which doesn't have a definitive definition. Yes, it would be more like, it would be more like uh, complex numbers because uh, the electron is a summary and entanglement of many achievements while the complex number is the possibility of asking questions which would be insane and uh, not possible without them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's it's more like uh, uh, what uh, I mean. Uh, what can we seriously say? Not metaphorically say. Tell which the the the, uh, the actual occasions uh, put at risk. So it's a question of being literal because of actual yeah. entity and not metaphorical not projecting human mm -hmm. features on So it's against projecting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was there a question here? Yes. If you could speak here and, and identify yourself and then go for it. Okay. I'm Mary Weaver and I'm a student of a little closer. History of Consciousness. And I had a question that's mostly for Isabel and Donna. And what I wanted to ask about um, and I kind of have a sense of how you're going to respond, but I want to see if you could be more explicit. Um, is the role of affect in the becoming with of Donna Cayenne? Um, that seems to be at once a proposition and a push towards disclosure. And just more broadly, how affect seems to be entwined in propositions. And I, I feel like in part, this comes from witnessing the two of you seeming to be very lured, and then Richard seeming to not be so lured. <laughs> There's this way in which you seem to be following along that has something to do with love. And so I wanted to see if we could make more explicit the role of feeling in, in becoming, and the way I think also that that is entwined with agency. So. You talk about, um, this is from Isabel, talking about process and reality and becoming and how what's at stake in the functioning of an actual entity um, is the subject deciding for itself how it will be explained by what was given for its becoming. That is, how it will both feel it and become the subject of this feeling. And so I was wondering, that kind of becoming the subject of being spoken by and the feelings that are coursing through these descriptions. If you could comment on that. Well, just to be technical, uh, feeling was one of Whitehead's uh, technical words, uh, playing at the level of the description of uh, actual entity. So it's completely not uh, human or psychological or whatever uh, uh, term. And I would say that uh, he could, but it was not, I think, a, a plausible proposition at his time. Uh, uh, he could have used affect. And when I had to translate uh, Whitehead, if the translation, French translation had not made the choice, 
since sentiment, so you sentir, which, may, which, which provides a sign, please, it's not sentiment, which is really uh, human. <laughs> but uh, if uh, the choice had not been done uh, to, to use uh, sentir for feeling, uh, I would have proposed affect. Because you have this indetermination where you can really have this, uh, uh, where indeed syntax and, and, and language come together in a <coughs> affecting way. <laughs> I mean, that uh, things affect you, but you can also say that you learn to, to be affected by things. Uh, there is, it's a James indetermination uh, situation, you know, because, and it is indeed uh, the, the very point of, of feeling for the actual occasion is that they have to feel, but the indetermination which must be determined is how they f will feel. That is, how they will be affected by what is given to, 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 to be felt, what they have to feel. There is no choice. So I think that uh, when we come to, 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 to human experience, where both feeling and affect at their origin, I mean, uh, we have no we have no uh, we have no answer. And Whitehead's task is not to give us answer. We would not have produced, but we have. Uh, the, 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 the task to be very careful with those words because there cannot be one definition. Those are two important words for us to try to, to, to define them, uh, to say it's the body, the, 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 the. No, no, those are one of those fundamental words which, uh, about which any kind of new use, new is epoch-making. So we, they are hot spots. I think that each time Whitehead took a normal word, like feeling or decision, uh, and turned it into a technical word, he was telling about hot spot words in our, uh, in our lives, Western lives. Would, would there have been other words for another philosophy, uh, another region of the world, probably, but not well, it's empty speculation. But so the hotspot words mean that uh, the way you use them are deciding for you, but you cannot decide for a good definition. You see, it's the inverse. Those are, way, those are matter for thinking and feeling, and not uh, matter for definitive good definition. That helps. I'm also thinking of the way that we were stressing for a while the notion of I get it, and staying with the mathematical examples. The, the, um, there is, um, in the getting of a geometrical proof, something that is extremely uh, forceful, but not especially human, including the way a human gets it. One is affected by it, uh, and, it and that getting it affects uh, what can be done next mathematically. Um, there is, and I'm thinking of Vincent Despre's uh, arguments about anthrop 
Prozoo Genesis, where she talks about making available the way an experimental uh, scientist and an animal, a rat, in a lab experiment in her example, make, are in some sense there's a making available to being affected, to being moved by. Um, that has to do with affect, but not exactly as a mo as emotion. That is, in this case, two animals, a human and a rat, but um, it, it is not their specific ratness or humanness that is affected. They, they, Im they impact on each other in a, because of a structure of an entanglement that made something available that would not have been made available by some other structure of entanglement. And remember, she, she contrasts the way Harry Harlow set up some of his experiments with monkeys as precisely not doing that, not making available anything that wasn't already known, uh, completely specifiable in advance. And it was because everything was specifiable in advance Discussing. in the Harlow work, as she, I'm not actually sure that's correct about the Harlow work, but that's that completely sayable quality, that it can be altogether put into language, even in the richest sense of language. Um, when that is the case, then the question of um, affect and feeling are already done. Um, and it is when something is available to something that is not yet, that is not, uh, and it's not human, humans get it, but, but it's not human in the way that usually means. And it certainly isn't transcendent or some kind of touchy-feely or romantic. There is an affecting that I think quite had meant by feeling. But that is some, somehow a human. If that makes any sense, it has to do with something which is not yet, but might be getting it. Yeah. It makes us it exists. Makes, it creates an availability. There's there's a, a related uh, uh, stream on online uh, that I think speaks to this uh, directly, which is there was some um, again a question about exactly what was involved in the forms of training that uh, co-creative um, enabling training that you were discussing. And, and so some people wanted you to say more about that and to see how also that kind of training figures into the thought of both Isabel and, and Dick. Um, uh, mm -hmm. So that's... That I think the route in is through the injunction to pay attention. And a mode of paying attention, the two critters involved in this particular relationship, it doesn't apply just to particular dog-human training practice, historic, it can apply to many kinds of um, uh, inter-intractive relations where the beings involved are becoming with in a way not available to either of them alone. Um, something is at stake deeply and requires a disciplined practice of paying attention, which involves, in my use of the training uh, instance is probably because it involves reasons in a rather strict sense, and it involves fulfilling what I regard as an ethical obligation, a human fulfilling this obligation, which is to say you damn well better know more at the end of the day than you knew at the beginning. And that might include learning something about behaviorism in its, in its variations. It might very well include learning something about behavioral ecology, about neurology, about um, the particular expressiveness um, that in, uh, about alert, uh, an alertness that is going to involve knowledge projects and explanations and reasons and um, disciplines of many sorts um, that, um, and on the dog's part, 
But partly what the human being is doing with the dog is setting up structures through which these two similar but dissimilar creatures of the sixth day can in fact and do learn to pay attention to each other such that, such that all of these things are made use of to do something which was not yet a good run. Now a good run is not a transcendental thing. It's a very earthly thing. Okay? So I'm not talking about going you know, mystical here. <laughs> I'm talking about a getting it, an affecting, a making available that did something. I don't know, it was an actual occasion produced that then affects further actual occasions? But it, I don't know. Um, that, so that the training situation seems to me to involve the elements of Whiteheadian thinking that, I, that Stengers gave us today in, in a way that makes me want to sit still with it and, as she said through Whitehead, approach it slowly. And I would add that if Whitehead's expression about attention was, for me, impact-making, it was also because of the due attention, because learning, there is what may, we have <coughs> many difficulties to, to define what is attention, but what learning, what mm -hmm. it demands to, to train together, is learning about what is due to the occasion you, are, yeah. you produce. You know, I, let, me, <laughs> let me throw an example out that might be interesting because it doesn't involve people, but I think it does involve this philosophical problem and the question of propositions in a Whiteheadian sense. And it involves a relationship that developed between a particular donkey and a particular dog. That is to say, a prey animal and a predator animal in terms of their biobehavioral heritage, who already knew how to read each other in the way that an herbivore and a, a wolf-derived critter already do know how to read each other. So that they, ha they shared enough to get on together further. But they don't normally play with each other. Specifically, they run from each other, or eat, one eats the other, or, or you know, play is really not the name of the game, <laughs> uh, generally speaking. But on the other hand, people who live with these beings um, are aware of many, many instances in which in individuals with particular kinds of social histories or whatever do invent games with each other that are patently uh, greatly satisfying to each. And it is not a linguistic operation, but it is a semiotic operation, if I can make the distinction. And it involves learning how to pay attention to each other's indications of play, of meaning but not meaning. What I am going to do does not, what I am going to, it learns being, learning how to pay attention to the way somebody else says, what I am going to do next does not mean what you think it's gonna mean. Pay attention, and then we can do it safe enough. We will be at risk, but not that way. We're not going to be at risk of being eaten. But miscommunication may very well produce failed play in the form of aggression in this case. Um, so that the invention of a game, strictly speaking, a game, and it's, if you will, quasi-syntactical elements, where the parts fit, who does what when, the, the ritual aspects of it, the particular things donkeys and dogs do with each other in a stylized way that then the other makes use of to do something that neither did alone, a becoming whip. I think that is a situation of the engagement of a Whiteheadian proposition. Exactly. That and doesn't I, involve I, people. And it can also involve people, but for instance, an adult and a small child. If the adult proposed a play of playing wolf, you know, wow. Mm -hmm. must pay due attention to the, the precise moment where the, ch the child could forget about 
the player. And you have to learn and the become afraid. Yeah. And yeah. You, are, you have to be very sensitive to, to this turning of excitation into that's for real, which is not discursive, but which is a, a social upheaval, which is uh, the, the kind of epochal transformation you have to avoid with the child. Hi there, my name is Timothy Whitmore. I'm from the Department of Cultural and Social Anthropology here at Stanford and also the Archaeology Center. I had a question to follow up on one of the comments that Professor Rorty made, which is uh, perhaps we're overestimating the, uh, the vileness of abstraction uh, and that maybe there shouldn't be such a dis... That, I'm sorry, maybe a little bit higher here. That perhaps maybe there should be such a... Maybe we're holding out too much of a distinction between uh, the concrete and the abstract, especially maybe if we think of the abstra abstraction in terms of linguistic practices or words. And what, why I want to kind of uh, ask a little bit about this, which will uh, eventually lead me to a question for uh, Professor Stangers, is, uh, is a personal comment that Professor Haraway made about uh, essentially this anti-scientism uh, or kind of pro-scientism that tends to develop and based in archaeology, and as a graduate student, sort of emerging into my field, it seems like a very sensitive time to kind of assess the status of the field that you are entering in. I'm assessing it to be quite fragmented into very specialized, very situated type of archaeologies, um, uh, very focused towards particular and situated problems. And I guess I'm wondering, contra maybe what, what we're saying about Whitehead and his uh, therapy against abstraction, is perhaps we need some abstraction if we think of it in in the way that Rorty suggests, as kind of a linguistic practice in order to create from science studies what people have called kind of these trading zones to be able to talk to one another essentially in these increasingly fragmented disciplines such as archaeologies. And I guess to finally lead to the question would be, uh, Professor Stingers, you talked about something called situated and pragmatic philosophy. That might be kind of a, a future-oriented idea of where speculative philosophy is going. And I'm wondering if maybe you could expand upon a little bit of that, because it does seem to touch upon the other issues about this fragmentation and uh, more common or abstract linguistic practices to be able to assess the various um, specialized and situated disciplines that seems to characterize science and science studies right now. So I, I hope that was not too roundabout. Thank you. Uh, I, I, as I understood the, the question where you were concerned had to do with how abstraction and understood linguistically can be fruitful. Um, I, I was suggesting that we that abstraction is not a, a useful topic. It's not something to be understood linguistically or non-linguistically. It's that the abstract concrete distinction is has exhausted its utility. <laughs> that we we have a use for it in common life and we say, that's too abstract, give me a concrete example. But when you try to turn it into a piece of philosophical terminology, I think it doesn't do any, it, it doesn't do much for us. I think Isabel has a response to that, <laughs> as well, well as to the question. I know that when I am asking one of my students, or even any intellectual interlocutor, uh, give me an example. Uh, it's too abstract. Uh, it does not mean white alien abstraction. It, it may mean, indeed, uh, using words the way they should be used. But And so my, my, my demand is, make me feel. 
make me feel what you 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 are trying to propose me. Uh, so so it it may be the the difference between sentences which can be well built, but you just can cannot you don't feel transformed by them, so you do not get them. And there are some academic languages which are not made to be good. <laughs> I mean, they are just producing and articulating all the right signs to 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 confirm the sophistication of the student and the fact he used all the good words and avoided all the the politically incorrect ones. But you don't feel anything, meaning that you did, do not get what's the point. So give me an example. It's trying to, to, to produce a situation where if there is some if there was something to be got, it would have a chance to, 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 to make itself feel. And the bad point is when there is no example, I mean, but that's the, the sad story of uh, the, the academy. It's only in the academy that we can deal with sentences where there are no examples, I mean, or no situation. So about the fragmentations of uh, sciences, this is indeed one of my great uh, matter of interest as an active philosopher, not a speculative philosopher. Uh, it is something I did call uh, the ecology of practices. And I mean practice uh, as what joins together trained specialists uh, in a common not not a common definition of what they have to do, but a common concern for what is an achievement in their field. Uh, that's what I call obligation. Obligation mean, meaning what does, uh, how are we obligated because we belong to this field? Oh, and how is this belonging a matter of joining us because we ask together questions nobody in this field outside of the field would really understand as a matter of concern I am. I like contro uh, experimental controversies as uh, really uh, turning about points which would interest nobody. I mean, when, and when I did listen to physicists discussing, I knew that the bad taste would be, but you could just, no, they obviously cannot just, and this is the, the obligation that joined them together as specialists. This is a beauty. This is a, the life and motion quality I recognize in those specialist controversies. So a practice to me is uh, something which, where you feel there is an inside, not because it would be a fortress, but because their concern is something which you can understand while not sharing them as you can understand an alpinist concern where I, I am exactly not an alpinist. And this is one of the uh, great things about novels is to share things uh, you are not. It's, and what you share is often the kind of obligation which make it worth to do that. So ecology of uh, practice would mean that indeed there is partitioning. There are multiple insides and outsides, but how can they be present to each others? 
And it's, it's really also a matter of uh, uh, despite beings uh, trying to come together without the dream of becoming the same. You will never, and it's, it's a, it would be a bad dream to have a chain suddenly saying, hello, Donna, here I am. <laughs> I have understood everything. It would be a nightmare. It can be a nightmare, but it is not a, a practical, practical in, the, in the strong meaning of the terms. So how to present myself, that's what I try to do when I say I am a philosopher, with what matters for, him, for me. And I think that uh, indeed academic places are rather um, dreary places because specialists are presenting themselves with their authoritative, authoritative achievement and not with what specifically puts them at risk. And is, is for them the, the small but highly important difference between an achievement, something normal, and a complete failure, or even a, a crime against the, the regional specific ethic, way of behaving. Eva Domańska, Department of Social and Cultural Anthropology, Stanford. We heard here a lot about being with. We didn't hear about being for. I have an impression that since we were talking about Christian a tradition, in Christian tradition, the fundamental idea of the relationship, not between, only between human beings, but also between humans and non-humans, is this being for. So also, as I understand this event, it's not only about thinking with white no, Whitehead, but also uh, that this is about being for him in terms of organizing an event that would say something about the contemporary legacy of Whitehead. This is my uh, first impression, and I would like uh, you to comment on it, because I think that this idea of being for has been somehow dismissed here. The second question uh, is about uh, a little disagreement between Professor Rorty and Professor Stengers and uh, Professor Haraway about urgent matters that should or should not be um, discussed uh, among philosophers and by them. I wonder how comes that Professor Rorty does not see these urgent matters that philosophers um, should discuss, and I'm sure that we would find many such matters that, uh, that we feel that should be discussed. And the last question is to Professor Haraway. I admire your um, attempts to go beyond anthropocentrism. I wonder how your idea of training, um, and I wonder if your idea of training is not against it. Because idea of training itself uh, says something about disciplining, not the human being, but a dog. So I wonder how we can really resolve it. Thank you. Uh, so there were three. Three questions there, uh, whether you find the concept of being for um, as useful and central as the concept of withness vis-a-vis uh, -vis Whitehead, uh, and um, what to make of the difference uh, concerning urgency, uh, uh, the nature and, 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 and the content. Um, and then the question of anthropocentrism. And then we'll be exhausted. Well, I will 
quickly answer my uh, uh, one part of the question, which is, which may be uh, why, indeed, it's always uh, being with. I am interested in inheriting whited and uh, not being for. I I am not for whited. I try to be a, a, a witness of whited impact, effect, the way he did affect me. And it is this impact I try to make myself a relay of. But if it doesn't work, it does not work. Maybe it, it will work later. The, 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 the time was now, or the, the urgents were different. But I am really uh, very uh, not at ease with the being for expression, as it is usually taken. And you did not give enough example for me to, 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 to escape the, the dominant thing, which would be in the name of, um, which would say that white should interest everybody. And everybody who is not knowing about white is lacking white So I, I am not at ease with the being for, because you did not give me elements enough to, to defend uh, the expression against this uh, being for white meaning it is good for everybody. And in the name of something is for me the, the same problem, I mean. I am an immanent thinker, and I am, I think even transcendence is an immanent event. I am not against transcendence. What I am against uh, is the contrast between what is immanent and what is transcendent. In some syntax, everything is transcendent, and in some syntaxes, everything is immanent, but not immanent to something which would be transcendent. This is the syntax I, I try to, to deshabituate me from. It's a hard question, the anthropocentrism issue, which is why I took the sixth day seriously. Um, and the training relation seriously, precisely because it is a relationship where authority cannot be denied unless you're a liar. Um, and the being the, um, there are ways that I enlist Cayenne's abilities for my purposes and lead her to accept my purposes as her own. To deny, to deny that would be, involve me in a um, simple lie, not a, such a simple lie. Okay. That's why I call it training in the contact zone, with deliberate reference to the problem of imperialism, to the problem of the law, um, and the trying to think well about this, because I believe that the relationships of human beings and other organisms is urgent, uh, and that one cannot deal with it through the um, existing discourses of animal rights, or anti-anthropocentrism, or critique, it's various anti-moves nor by disavowing domestic, domestic relationships without becoming immediately quite genocidal, by which I mean wiping out the people and animals who have lived for thousands of years entire ways of life uh, that, uh, that uh, if domestication is to figure the fall in its, in its um, peoples of the book sort of way, then we are in deep trouble because I believe that to be a genocidal imagination of a major sort. Um, so I'm trying to inhabit this is one little piece of a much bigger, a big, bigger and tapestry. This yellow bit of paint, okay. This contact zone, 
to think about the, well, the questions of freedom and authority, <laughs> and the questions of, um, this is not a relationship which can be made equal without producing a kind of death I'm not willing to produce, namely, I would end up killing my dog if I treated this as a situation of equality. Um, and therefore, um, a kind of ethical obligation to her remaining alive involves my taking seriously the questions of authority in these relationships, unless I disavow all pet relationships and a certain kind of one version of a certain kind of animal rights discourse, which I'm not about to do for many reasons, which have to do with, I believe, being responsible to other organisms uh, in all sorts of ways. So I am intent upon showing, not just saying, that relations of use, domestication, utility, including eating and wearing, much less training with, you know, do not reduce the other organism to nothing but anything. It is not merely or nothing but at all. But there is some mode of living and dying here, including killing, that I need to face. And I actually believe this question of killing, I, I was brought this to this mainly really more through the question of abortion than through the question of living with animals and eating and wearing them. But you can't, you'll be brought to it. Anything you take seriously, you will be brought quickly to the question of killing. And I don't believe we can solve these questions of anthropocentrism and the damage that is done by the uh, practice of human exceptionalism without facing killing, uh, including of other human beings. And I believe the abortion situation is a perfectly good place to live with it. Uh, denying that that's what abortion is has never struck me as much of a way of dealing with it. Thank you. Don't need that. I, I believe that we can't live well unless we kill well, unless we accept some kinds of killing as ethically necessary. How to tell the difference? Well, there's no way to do that by definition. I, I think the questions of living with animals involve that kind of problem of... Um, well, Katsia thinks that, too. The, the question of, of, of genocidal killing right. is at stake here. That's what I mean when I say these questions of cohabiting the sixth day, actually the fifth, too, are urgent, newly posed, at stake. And this is one little place to think about it, because I can't lie that, sh that oh, there's an instrumentalism involved here. But I also think I would be lying if I adopted a certain kind of radical anti-anthropocentricism <laughs> that claimed that these training relationships are only about human authority or that the human being is not also obedient, in this case, to this dog. Uh, Vicki Hearn does the best job on that. If I have a dog, a dog has me, and I better pay attention to how. And if I am not obedient to her, we will not run well. Um, uh, so it's not about equality in the democratic civil, in, in the theory of democracy as a, as a theory of civics, which has a place in the world, but which all you have to do is watch Bush and realize that you better not generalize that one without, because if you do, you will be involved in a killing machine. On the other hand, I'm not about to give up democracy because I know when it becomes a killing machine. And so on the other hand, I don't believe democracy is a useful language game, techniques, whatever, for the kind of paying attention to each other that my being obedient to Cayenne requires. So anthropocentrism, <coughs> it's human exceptionalism that's the problem and how to be with in ways that do not deny these very, these questions of um, instrumentalism and authority and all the rest of it in some reductive way by going to sort of one side or the other of a supposed purification.
that would be, in Whiteadian terms, a misplaced, misplaced concreteness or a misplaced something. <laughs> you know, I agree with Rorty, the, the, the abstract concrete thing ends up being misheard in so many ways that one might better produce sentences without using the words for a while or something. But I uh, never... Because what, what, no, of course, because what Whitehead means by abstraction, <laughs> Whitehead's Whitehead, abstractions are extremely valuable. And certain kinds of linguistic reductionism are an example of misplaced concreteness, not abstraction. So on. It's, it's that problem. And I don't know if that addresses your really hard, if, because this is a hard and urgent issue. I will have two, two things to say, and then I'll let everybody go. Um, the first is that uh, Isabel's paper should be available here for those of you who haven't read the initial uh, uh, jumping off point uh, for this conversation. Um, there are hard copies here, and uh, for, for this session as well as for the next two sessions, uh, the, the papers are online, available to registrants, so you can access them uh, in the ways I've already told you. And the, I'm going to conclude just with um, uh, Isabel, out of this discussion of abstraction and concreteness, remarked, uh, she translated uh, this to uh, give me an example, produce a situation, so if something is to be got, there's a chance that it will make itself felt. So um, I, I, it occurred to me that I could, in fact, quite readily describe what we're trying to do uh, in this series of events, and specifically with the, the, the one that just happened, um, which uh, was give you an example of uh, talking about, thinking with, um, arguing about Whitehead, um, producing a situation so if there's something to be got in Whitehead, there's a chance to make it felt. And that's what we're trying to do here. Thank you very much. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.